house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. to say okay shoot dear santa claus how have you been did you have a nice summer how is your wife i have been extra good this year so i have a long list of presents that i want oh brother hello and welcome to the this head oscar buzz podcast the only podcast that is nothing nowhere never Every week on this head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my old acquaintance who should not be forgot, Joe Reed. Hello, I am uh, coming to you from inside of a bomb cyclone right now, which is fun. Um... Very seasonal episode with the wind. Yeah, listeners, you may hear gusts of wind battering my home at some point. You may hear also my brother's dog because the family is all home for the holidays. So there's huddled uh, together, potentially losing power soon. Oh my god, knock on wood. If we have a sudden change in like audio quality and our energy level, we are recording this on the day that, you know, a good swath of the country is covered in ice. Uh, um, and wind and snow and and just frigid temperatures. It's fun. It's a good time. It's a good time. Instead of being in a metaphorical, uh, <laughs> you know, ice barren land that we right. have each other in, uh, keeping each other warm and right. upbeat with stories of Oscar, we are literally doing that this time. Right. The, Do you the really weather out. Plans to see Babylon today. But yeah, both of our plans. We both had individually planned to go see Babylon today, and the weather has thwarted those plans. So, Listen, I was about to, as I told you as we were uh, getting on this call, I was going to uh, bundle myself up like the little brother in uh, A Christmas Story <laughs> and waddle the half mile I go to my theater. Um, it would have been a real battle for your life, Babylon. Um, we love it. I will let go of my heart. I will let go of my head and feel the cold. <laughs> oh my sound. god, right. um, Babylon! Uh, we're here to do the mailbag. Andy yeah, mailbag we love from a mailbag, our listeners. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for your thoughtful, fun, uh, and always exciting questions, listeners. Indeed. Uh, we got so many. I feel like we got even more than last year, and. Uh, they were all fantastic. We had a lot of questions that we either answered recently since uh, mm-hmm. we'd uh, accepted questions, and we have some that will even be kind of answered in uh, episodes to come. So apologies yes. if your uh, question is not asked on the show. You all did wonderful. We appreciate and love you, and hopefully this is a nice end-of-the-year treat for you all. Um, it's a certainly a, a nice end of the year treat for us. So yes, uh, yes. yes, we're we're here to have fun. We hope this is fun for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in the submission tool, a lot of the Garys out there did not read the instructions to leave their names. So if you submitted a question <laughs> and it gets asked, but you didn't give your name, we will just be referring to you as 
Gary. We love you, uh, Gary. What's fun about that is if you are a listener who sent in a question, your question wasn't asked, you can just pretend to be one of the Garys that has a question asked. That's you true. You can always do that. You can claim, uh, what is it, collective, you can claim the collective noun that is Gary and, uh, <laughs> and, and fit yourself under that umbrella. Yes. It is a, uh, I would like to claim it as a gender neutral name. Absolutely. Yes. Very good. I, I mean, there are many uh, Garys in the culture. There's Gary Cole. There's Mavis Gary. That's right. Uh, Others. We definitely need to do at some point. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the questions, though, Joe, though, Joe do you yes. have any updates for us on the Vulture Movies Fantasy League? Yeah, I certainly do. So uh, this week, if you have, or if you are a participant in the Vulture Movie Fantasy League, of course you know I send out a newsletter on behalf of Vulture every week to update. We will not be having a newsletter on. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, the 26th, 27th, uh, because we are taking the holiday off, but we will be back on January 3rd, which is, uh, the day after all the Rotten Tomato scores lock in. So that'll be that big update. Plus, whatever Avatar, The Way of Water box office points will have accumulated. We'll know by then whether Babylon has, boy, tough weekend for Babylon to open just in general with, you know, dicey box office prospects and then on the top of this this like storm that's covering half of the country so like right i'm not anticipating great box office results from babylon but whatever same goes probably for... be a rough box office weekend just because of this crazy storm but that's then, what i'm saying you know, that's what i'm saying so it's will be better uh, uh also i want to dance with somebody opening a movie that i've been curious oh to see what oh boy what the audience is for that one because it's Potentially bigger than we think, but yet... I agree. I don't know. I don't know. Will the audience be satisfied by the movie, though? I don't right. know. Well, I haven't seen it. Can't tell. I will definitely be seeing it because right now it feels like there are maybe 10 movies playing in theaters total. At most. At most. Um, yeah. Because everything, all the screens are being gobbled up by three hour plus movies. <laughs> um, one, yeah. one in particular. <laughs> yes. Well, even Babylon. Uh, yeah, is, that's true. Yeah, but I don't think if we're going to be complaining about, you know, our multiplexes aren't don't have room sure, for anything else. Sure. I'm not going to I'm not going to put that on Babylon like that's James Cameron can own that one for a while. Um, <laughs> anyway, the Disney Corporation can own that. Sure. Why not? God forbid we blame James Cameron for anything. OK, um, what we talked about in the newsletter this past week, though, I thought was kind of interesting and I wanted to bring it up a little bit. I did a little, you know, I love dumb math uh, that, <laughs> that doesn't make me have to go too far into uh, the mathematics of it. So what I did was I wanted to know what are the best value picks uh, so far, because we're at the sort of end of critics awards season. So we have a good chunk of awards points and it's like, what was the best bang for your buck selection that you picked up for like a very low cost, but has given you, um, you know, a good amount of money because like everything everywhere all at once has gotten a ton of points. Like I picked that movie and I'm really glad I did because I've gotten like hundreds of points, but it cost me a pretty penny. It cost me, you know, $60 in the, of my hundred dollar budget. So on a per dollar basis, it's been okay. You know what I mean? But like there are other movies that you could get for relatively cheap that have really paid off. So I mean, I sort of did the calculations on that. 
Have you looked, Chris, or can I surprise you with what our number one best value movie is? Of the I did so see, and I thought that it was fabulous. I loved it. Uh, Dale Dickey and Wes Studi in A Love Song, which was a Sundance hit uh, at the beginning of the year, cost a dollar if you wanted to pick it up. It was the uh, it was the cheapest movie you could get, and it has thus far gotten 35 points in the league, which, again, in a league where everything everywhere all at once is pulling in 400-something, not a lot, but if this was your last movie you picked for a dollar, like 35 points is, you know, that's pretty good. It got some independent spirit nominations. It got cited on the National Board of Reviews top 10 independent films. It got a Movies for Grown Ups nomination for Best Grown Up Love Story. I swear to God, if a love story doesn't win Best Grown Up Love Story, I will, I, I will protest outside of the AARP headquarters. <laughs> Uh, I'm just happy for it. I'm just, I'm happy for a nice, good, like well-chosen. That is a, that was a smart pick by you. If you picked a love song, you deserve, uh, those points. The second one on our list is one that has gotten a little bit more hefty uh, in the points wise. And, and I think has a brighter future down the line too. So if you picked up RRR for $3, that's gotten you a hundred points so far. So quick little uh, math. That's 33.33 points per dollar. And I think it's still going up. This is a movie that's going to get some Oscar nominations. And uh, at $3, that was a really smart pick for you. Um, going down the list, we've talked about Emily the Criminal before. Emily, Emily the Criminal is doing actually really well uh, this award season. And honestly, here's my question to you. So this thus far, 50 points off a $2 uh, purchase, which is... 25 points per dollar, which is pretty great. Good for third on our list. Um, it's gotten Independent Spirit Awards points and NBR points and whatnot. Here is my question to you, Chris. What we know about the Screen Actors Guild and its ability to, every once in a while, throw in a wild a nomination, like a Sarah Silverman in uh, I Smile Back. Is yes. Aubrey Plaza in Emily the Criminal a possibility as out a, a super left field wild card? I think that is the perfect analogy for if it happens that it's like that. Um, but people how, would respect it more because I think people sort of snickered at the Sarah Silverman nomination. The thing, the thing that I think makes it unlikely is, from what I remember of that season, is Sarah Silverman actually like did a shit ton of SAG Q and A's for it. They got the sure. screener out very early. Right. I don't <clears> think that's me, the right. case for Emily the Criminal. And I think, but it did get put on Netflix recently and we've that seen is very that true. like movies and that get added to Netflix. the charts for Netflix too. Exactly. Um, exactly. So I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if it does happen, just remember what podcast you heard it on first. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think, I think there's some logic there. I would be, I would, put the safer money that emily the criminal has you know reached the end of the line as probably far as the that's the concerned. more likely scenario yes but that is not a crazy idea to throw out there on your part uh next down on the list we've talked about how good after sun is doing in the fantasy league and also just in award season in general i think that's a movie that has not seen the end of its rope yet i think there are oscar there's oscar potential for that movie that i'm very excited about um that's 120 points off of a $5 buy. Pretty good. After that, after Yang, which people forget, like, those first couple awards uh, entities with uh, Indie Spirits 
and then the New York Film Critics Circle, because it's shared best actor with Banshees of Inisherin. That's where all of After Yang's points have come so far, but still, that's mm-hmm. 40 points off of a $2 buy, so that's still good for fifth place thus far on our value list. Number six is The Big Boy, Banshees of Inisherin, which is currently, I believe, second or third? Uh, I think it's third, currently third in points from awards for uh, for the league thus far off of a $20 buy. Currently, right now, if you look at the leaderboard on the Vulture Movie Fantasy League, which you can look at, by the way, if you go to uh, moviegame.vulture.com and click the link to the landing page for the league, you can go and look at the standings. I think... The grand majority of everybody at the top of the leaderboard are people who picked Banshees of Inisherin and Tar together. Like that combination has been a real winner and, uh, you know, good for them. So that's 300 points off of the 20. That's 15 points per dollar. After that is living. Bill Nye is here and I am living. Uh, 75 <laughs> points thus far off of a $5 pick. Bill Nye, uh, has best actor hopes ahead of him, which is good. So I think that could keep going up, up, up. Causeway is next on the list, off of almost entirely off of Brian Tyree Henry getting best supporting actor placements, various places. Do we feel like he's a dark horse contender to get a nomination in best supporting actor or no? I do i'm really i mean and they seem to be doing a lot for that movie in terms of like q a's and such i think in the case of coda it was a huge question mark throughout that season and that was a good strategy for apple um it does seem to be as far as that campaign is concerned hitting all the right marks i do just really worry about how many people are actually seeing that movie i mean i feel like Mm-hmm. nobody's really talking about it he's incredible he's you know probably on my ballot um and i mean we want to see him be an oscar nominee we know he will be at some point yeah um i i'm just curious if people are watching the movie i would agree with that and i i um, definitely think that like as far as the rest of the conceit the season is concerned that's not a movie that's going to show up for anywhere but him yeah oh definitely uh, ninth place on our value list is Elvis, which has gotten 135 points thus far off of a $10 buy. Um, that Those points have almost entirely come in the last week or so from the Golden Globe nominations and the Critics' Choice. Elvis, I think, is coming on strong at exactly the right time. And we'll talk about a little bit. I think there's a couple occasions uh, in our mailbag where we can talk about the current race and where right. Elvis stands. I think Elvis is positioned very well. I think there's potential for uh, when the Oscar nominations come out for Elvis to be the nomination leader. Whoa, that is I think there's a, potential for that. That's a big statement. All right. And then 10th place on our value list, another one that I think is coming on strong at the right time, which is All Quiet on the Western Front, which has gotten 40 points thus far off of a $3 buy. It showed up on a lot of the Oscar shortlists the other day. So the nomination count for this movie could be in the, like, five range you know what i mean like i could definitely see a five nomination morning for all quiet on the western front and like in some ways give or take a pinocchio in some ways all quiet on the western front is kind of netflix's best awards play 
thus far. Yeah, when there was all this hand-wringing a few months ago of like, what's Netflix's big play? Is it White Noise? Is it Glass Onion? Is it Bardo? And it's going to end up being Pinocchio and All Quiet on the Western Front. Pinocchio is less mm-hmm. surprising because it's Guillermo del Toro, of course. We knew, yeah, we all, I think we all sort of saw coming down the pike that like Pinocchio was going to be a big contender and animated. That's why but I as the season was team. starting, we thought it would just be a contender and animated, and now that's not going to be the case. Possibly. Right. It feels like that's a three or four nomination. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A gainer. So, all right. So, anyway, that's your Vulture Fantasy League update thus far. Chris, how are you feeling about your team? Uh, I am hovering around the thousandth mark. I knew that my. my... You're going to break through soon. My team was never going to be a box office team. This is my team is about the long haul. I do yeah. think some of the gambles I took in terms of getting points throughout the season for international features and documentaries aren't going to play out. And I wish I might have uh, drafted something like RRR in my. Uh, yeah, what's if you could if you could uh, ditch one movie from your team uh, and pick up something else, what would you ditch? Well, I mean, that's that's hard to say. Hindsight is twenty twenty, especially when we're talking about these $1 movies that are I'm yielding. just saying, I picked Lyle Lyle Crocodile on the hopes that it would end up on the song list and it didn't <laughs> even make the bake-off, so I am regretful. Uh, I would boot Corsage, which I do think will ultimately Corsage be Corsage has been very quiet, yes. But did make Corsage the shortlist for international. Is not gonna win any critics' prizes for international feature. It's not I, gonna show up. The in hopes, costumes. the hopes that Vicky Creeps might be an outsider cho- choice for Corsage really depended on it being winning a bunch of critics' prizes for uh, for international film in a less competitive and like by competitive I mean like there's four slots probably entirely locked up. Uh, yeah. I think in a different year, she probably had a really good shot. Um, yeah. People really like that performance. People she's really getting like out her. there for that movie quite she a is. bit. She was too. in that c- Criterion closet the other day. Listen, on on her Instagram story, uh, Vicky's great on Instagram, Gary's. You need to follow Vicky. Um, she's like constantly on planes going to different <laughs> cities to, you know, do Q&As for this movie. She's getting out there. But uh, Do you remember how she showed up before our screening of Corsage at TIFF in her full, like, uh, party gown, ready to, like, go to the premiere? Yes, she, uh, uh, looked amazing. It was, she said something. She was, uh, she was like, get ready for a wild ride or something about the, <laughs> the movie, too. And I was like, God, I love you. I will love you forever. <laughs> All right. Do we want to delve into that's our Vulture uh, Fantasy Movie League update, by the way. Uh, go to one more time moviegame.vulture.com and click the link to the landing page there and see how your team is doing. Uh, thank you. This being our year end uh, uh, episode, thank you to everybody who participated in the Vulture Movie Fantasy League and continues to participate. It's been very fun. So. Um, I like seeing people tweeting about it and just sort of like, this is how my team is doing, like after I send out the newsletter update on uh, on Tuesdays. So uh, Cameron Sheets, I see you. Uh, and I'm glad <laughs> that, uh, that you're happy with how your team is doing. All right. This is when the points are going to kick into high gear, too. So it's about to get really fun for everyone. Yes. Yes. Let's right. get into questions. Let's do it. Joe, I am so proud and honored. Hmm. By our listeners and the Garys, each and every one, many people did, knew that this would be coming out 
Yes. Around the 20th anniversary of the motion picture, The Hours. I know. A movie know. that means so much to us. My life uh, kind of went into turmoil in the last couple of months, so I wasn't able to write anything about the, the anniversary yeah, of The Hours. And I, I am... I am sad about that yeah but. i hate that i'm not getting to do any 20th anniversary stuff for the movie well, i'd thrown out to you at the beginning of the year i was like what if we just drop like a surprise christmas gift to people where we you just did mention talk that. about the hours you did mention that however listen you like it nothing we don't nothing have the says we to. can't <laughs> nothing says we can't do that in the future but right, yeah this right. was maybe 25 yeah, this last couple months was not uh, the time to do it, unfortunately. Well, uh, uh, luckily, we can have a small little window of our episode to talk about the hours because yeah. our lovely listenership knew that we love talking about it and they wanted yes. to hear us on it. So we have some questions on the hours. Uh, right. Let's get started with Andrew's question. Uh, you've been tasked with recasting the hours without reusing any of the previous stars. Take us through your role choices and speculate wildly about who would receive Oscar buzz. I like this. All right. Why don't you start off, Chris? Because I'm very curious to hear what you have. I intentionally kind of started us off with what I found to be maybe the hardest question we received. Because I think the temptation is, as people who were ground level fans of this movie, is Mm -hmm. I think what people don't kind of understand is these three actresses headlining this movie at that time yeah i think that's incredibly hard to recreate and it's not just like you would want to the point where i didn't do that like i went the other (laughs) i went another way i kind i kind of did even though i don't feel great about it because of this slippery thing of like you're talking about i mean meryl is the titan and like Meryl mm-hmm. would go through several resurgences, but like this was the beginning of one for her. And then Nicole Kidman, Julianne Moore, two actresses that we know are going to be definitely getting Oscars. And like they're mm-hmm. also reaching a peak of their careers as well. And it's like, mm-hmm. who right now is doing that? Who is doing that, you know? And who is right for these roles, too? I think in terms of who's going to... The Oscar buzz portion of this question, I think probably the people in the same exact roles that got Oscar nominations, plus whoever would play Carole Slavon, because Meryl didn't get nominated. Right. Um, And maybe if you have someone who just, like, blows into that scene as well as Tony Collette does as Kitty, there Mm. is a possibility of that actress doing it because that seems so yeah. good um, yeah but yeah I all right so i i cast the three main roles i didn't really move beyond that yeah but i also with the caveat that like i didn't do a great job of matching everybody up to be the same age but like right. i went on vibes so well, I mean, from the text, I don't think everyone is cast as the right age. So we can we can right. we can play flimsy with that. So for Clarissa, I thought of the three main roles. I think the Clarissa role is the best opportunity to cast a non-white actress in this mm. cast, which I think you would want to do if you are making the hours today. And I immediately, even though I think she's at right now probably old, like. A good bit older than Meryl was when she played the role. Uh, but Anna DeVere Smith gives me the right sort oh of New God. York bohemian vibe. 
that I think would be really, really good in that role. Mm-hmm. And I I really sort of fixated on that. I think if she is maybe aged out of that age range by now, but like I think that Clarissa role can like be flexible. I mean, it could be. She's in her early seventies you... right now, but right, that's a fifty-something woman, ideally. I mean, you can also be flexible on when that story takes place, kind of. Totally. Because totally. It, it could be in the 90s, it could be in the 2000s. Yeah. It probably couldn't be today because Laura Brown would be dead. Um, right, right. But the other option I had was Sandra Oh for that role, who I think could be really interesting mm-hmm. as a sort of, you know, um, again, living in the West Village going to the flower shop every day, a little frazzled, a little unsure of herself. I think she could play those notes very well. For Laura Brown, I kind of fastball down the middle. I thought Diane Lane would be really, really good and interesting in the role of Laura Brown. And then as Virginia Woolf, even though I think you're, she's already going to be probably in makeup, I would demand that she have the same makeup as Nicole. So like that's fine. <laughs> Virginia um, Woolf is probably the hardest one to cast, too. I would cast Carrie Coon because I really feel oh. like she could inhabit that role really well. And she'd be I a good Laura to Brown too. She'd be good. I mean, she'd be good as yes, that's true. Um, but I just feel like as Virginia, I would want to see her sort of burrow into that woman and kind of watching her lash out and watching her, you know, Oh, I think she would be great. I think she'd be very good at that. So yeah, this was a fun little exercise. I enjoyed it. I kind of, got hung up so much more on i don't want to say status but like emulating no you make a good point though that like if you're doing it now you also want to have the like the thrill of it all of the actresses that you're choosing and for clarissa vaughn while i don't know if this is the a perfect casting because to me like the quintessential uh clarissa vaughn is like laura linney right like i thought of laura linney as well yeah um i mean who is in that status that meryl was in at that time and it's like it's kate blanchett right now kate blanchett is at another peak right now yes what i thought of again uh Virginia Woolf is the hardest one to cast, and I thought of maybe Saoirse Ronan, who is probably too young, but yeah, maybe but isn't. Yeah. Um. I also thought of Tabicki, but she's also played Virginia Woolf before. Right. Um, that's right. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to is that Gemma Arterton in that movie? I think you're Vita right. In Virginia, she's the Vita. I should have put that in the quiz that I gave you and Katie the last time you guys were on, but yes, yeah. Um. And for Laura Brown, I thought of Emma Stone. Um, just kind yeah. of like uh, Emma Stone is, you know, built to kind of emote and cry gloopy tears. Um, if you wanted to do the like three titans of it, though, you could do Blanchett as Clarissa, Tilda Swinton as Virginia. Oh, and, my God. And like. I don't know if this really works, but like a Natalie Portman as Laura Brown. I also thought of Anne Hathaway. The thing is, I think Anne Hathaway as Laura Brown's really interesting. Yes. Laura Brown, I think, as written, is younger than. I forget in the book if she is younger than Julianne Moore was at the time or if she Mm -hmm. is actually older than her husband. And maybe possibly both are true. Um, Right. So I'm not sure. All right. 
Anyway, let's move on to the next one. Uh, our first Gary question. Uh, we love <laughs> you, Anonymous Gary. Uh, yes. Gary asks, which scene won Nicole the Oscar? Could she have still won had been put in supporting actress? The second part of this question, I think, is a trickier question. It is. If, if you put it down to the a scene in the movie, it's definitely the train station it's scene. It's obviously I, the train station scene. I don't, yes. I don't think a scene won her that oscar no it's definitely but like that's clearly that's the that's the standout that's the it's one of those scenes where you i think it you know how much i hate this day and age of like twitter isolating a scene and putting it on twitter and being like people think this is good acting i think that's one of those scenes that could that that could really would really get savaged by people today because you put it up and it's just her just sort of like she's so you know, over the top and she's dying in this town and all this sort of stuff. But then in context, you know, you watch her sort of boil up to it. There's and highs and lows tremendous. to that scene though. It's like a the, great scene. The, I have the like, ultimate, I have no like, patience for people who don't like that scene. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. I do think, I mean, I think she probably would have won no matter what. I think there was even at the time, the hand wringing of, well, who's going to be placed in what category before we actually mm. knew. Yeah. I mean, I think she was never going to be placed in supporting, but I do think... But that was the scuttlebutt early. The scuttlebutt early was Kidman in supporting, Streep and Moore in lead. Well, because she does have the least screen time of the three headliners, which... And I think that's where that came from. Who gives a shit about screen time? Those people that, like, sit with a stopwatch and, like, calculate screen time. I'm glad that they do because I think... I like it as a footnote. I like like knowing that, like, I can go and I can find that information just as a footnote, but not as a determining factor for anything. But I feel like it that even is a detextual... Decontextualization that I don't love. Sure. Um... And like they, they should have all been ran in lead, um, especially because you have this wealth of supporting actress actresses' performances in this movie, like Tony right. Collette, that just never stood. Well, a and chance. the whole the whole conceit of the movie is that they're all equally whole, bearing the burden of this narrative. Like right, it's right. the whole point of the movie is that it's three leads. Yeah. The thing that I do think is interesting about the question of would she have won in supporting actress? I do think she probably would have. And I think she was probably the only person who could have beaten Catherine Zeta-Jones. I think it's a more difficult road to it. I think for as much as, for as talented as that best actress class was, and for as much as Julianne Moore was like really hitting it out of the park with Far From Heaven, I think once Kidman started to gain momentum, it was a very clear sort of shifting of the narrative. I think Catherine Zeta-Jones in the best picture frontrunner in a co-lead that sort of got bumped down to supporting, in a it's her moment kind of a thing, in a we didn't know she could do this kind of a reception, she's a much more formidable competition for Kidman, especially when you looked at Kidman and there was already rumblings that like, if she doesn't get it this year, she's got Cold Mountain next year. So like, right. you know, maybe she can just she get it next year. She wouldn't have won for Cold Mountain though. I don't think so either but i could see people trying to kick that can down the road and vote for Susie j instead so what i two things that i think are quite possible the more possible thing is that meryl does get nominated and lead yes yes and then i do also think it's possible that Catherine zeta jones is run as a lead with renee zellweger if nicole kidman Mm. isn't supporting i feel like Harvey Weinstein was so 
well versed in Oscar politicking by then that he would not have allowed two two lead actresses. But the thing about that season is there was a whole lot of battling because it's like Chicago was the wine scene movie and the hours was the Rudin movie and there were right. the, they were having these screaming matches about where they were placing each of their actresses because yeah. they were both each other's competition pick a side you can't resist you know whose side were you on weinstein or rudin you you know we're God, kind of God already starting to get them. into this so let's, okay i know, uh, I know. We're into the bethany's okay. question the hours yes. only win was for best actress besides best picture with of its other which of its other nominations would you give an oscar to first and besides yeah. meryl streep what nomination would you give it that it missed i love this question i'll take the second part first uh quiz show vibes um (laughs) easily my choice here is i would have given stephen delane a supporting actor nomination i I love that answer he deeply deserved i think he was so fantastic in terms of with him to be honest honestly yes and i don't like again i hate ed i i've never hated ed harris in the movie i i appreciate him more and more every time i watch that movie but stephen delane is the standout supporting actor in My order, answer for the second part of the question is I think Seamus McGarvey deserved a cinematography nomination for it. Seamus McGarvey wouldn't... What was, was Atonement the first thing that Seamus McGarvey was nominated for? That might not even be Seamus McGarvey. But I think no, that, that was. There, Atonement definitely was Seamus McGarvey, and I'll look that up right now. There um, are so many images in this movie that for a movie that, you know, is still to this day kind of pigeonholed as this, like stuffy literary ladies picture whatever there are such indelible images in this movie you know you think about the shot of like clarissa going up in the elevator the shot of virginia with the bird yeah um yeah shavis mcgarvey nominated twice for atonement and anna karenina so yes yeah that's a good pick i think of the nominations it did get in order of most deserving to have won (laughs) i start with adapted screenplay because it's a really really difficult feat of adaptation people talked about how it was unadaptable and i mean that that adapted screenplay category is uh not hurting for worthy winners though yeah but the pianist winning in retrospect i'm like that's the weakest of the category. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think costumes next would be my choice to win. I think those are some fantastic costumes in that movie. Um, editing, because again, not an easy thing to sort of make that whole thing flow into each other very well. Score would have ranked higher on my list, but that is a all-time banger of a original score. That's year. my top choice. Is it your top choice? I mean, that would be my wrong. top choice. I but mean, like, how many I, how many of people like us are like, I write to the hours score all the time. Like, it, it's it, true. But of the I'm past just, 25 years, I think it is one of the like top three motion picture scores, not just for quality, but in terms of the way that it's kind of stayed in the culture for a lot of different people. I feel like even people who want to shit on this movie probably have high things to say about Philip Glass's score. I've talked about this year, the 2002 score category before, but just to reiterate, it's Philip Glass for the hours, Elmer Bernstein for Far From Heaven, which was like hugely praised, praised so at the good. time for being, uh, you know, a wonderful sort of like A plus pastiche of old, you know, Douglas Sirk stuff. John Williams for Catch Me If You Can, which is by far one of the best John Williams late career uh, scores. It's so 
it John got a lot James of praise Brightly. for being non John Williamsy. Like right, John Williams right. was stepping out of a comfort zone. Exactly. Um, Road to Perdition, which is maybe my favorite Thomas Newman film score outside of Angels in America, maybe my favorite Thomas Newman score. It's so beautiful. God, talk about a score I will just dip into and listen to and sort of like melt into. And then the winner is Elliot Goldenthal for Frida. And Great score. That's a great score and a really interesting choice. So, like, no filler in this category. Not a bit, not a bit of filler in a category that, like, kind of often does have filler. And so, that's the only reason why I would have Philip Glass further down my list. But I think then after score, it's director, then supporting actress, then supporting actor. I think, uh, yeah, in that order. I, if not score, my choice might be controversial, and it's not its not the one that I would put at number one. Because what? if not for Pedro Almodovar in director, mm. Stephen Daldry works the shit out of this movie. I he think the it. kind yeah. of themes yeah. that still very much resonate come from his handling of the material. Um, that he can make this a movie that is so much about... Uh, yeah. authenticity and living with authenticity in a way that yeah. still speaks to a lot of people. Especially he gets no credit, people. even among us who like rave about this movie. Like we do very rarely talk about Stephen Daldry. I mean, it's an interesting, I mean, there's also Rob Marshall right there. And I think that there are two directors who have these movies that are so incredible and very well directed, mm-hmm. but like they didn't, you know, ever really reach that height again in terms right. of quality. Exactly. But again, if uh, Almodovar gets my vote, uh, I think that's probably the best Almodovar movie. Talk to her. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I wanted to show some love to Stephen Daltrey. All right. Is that our last hours question? That's our last hours question. We will we'll always be talking hours. about the hours, though. So always there will be, the hours. You know, always the hours. Yes. Uh, so let's get into some... A lot of people ask podcast-centric questions, which I always love and are always uh, very fun. I love that you guys are kind of interested in the lore of the show and us as hosts. Uh, we appreciate you. Let's start with Christian's question first. Which actors of the zero to three movies already covered do you think will make it to the six timers club? Do you think any actors will eventually hit 10 movies covered? We have three people on deck. Basically, Yeah. I didn't know whether Christian's question was like, do we think any male actors will eventually hit 10? And to that, I we say just had Mark, Matt Damon. It's possible well, Mark, that that was submitted before the, we bought a zoo yeah. episode came up. And Mark Ruffalo is knocking on the door as well. Yes. Ruffalo and Ruffalo's Kidman are going to be our next one. Yeah, Kidman, I think, is also at nine. Um, so those and, will probably uh, be Susan. our next two. Yes. And so by at some point, I will either have settled on a 10-timers quiz that I like, or we'll just do something different every single time. <laughs> I and... like that we do something different each time. Uh, the right. other person who I actually think could be the one that hits 10 first of these names we've mentioned is Dame Judy. Dame Judy's got a lot of movies out there. She's got this eight. Is true. Well, yeah. <laughs> oops, spoiler. Uh, she's about <laughs> to have eight. <laughs> she's about to have eight. She's um, about to hit eight. Uh, of the, go of ahead the... and guess what, uh, yeah. what the Judy movie yeah. is. Um, 
of the one of the actors and actresses who have gotten only zero to three movies thus far, I looked at Carrie Mulligan and I'm like, oh, we're she's going to hit six at some point. There's a bunch of movies out there of hers that we haven't covered yet that we, I think, would like to. I think uh, Wildlife is out there. Shame is out there. Far from the Madden crowd. I think there's a chance that she said could end up getting blanked. I think probably not, but like there's a chance out there. So I think Carrie is a contender. I, uh, after, I feel like recent episodes, just like look at the cast of those movies because we just did Man in the Iron Mask where I was like, oh, surely we're doing a six timers this time. And it's like yeah. the, all those actors had had two episodes. And yeah, we got we, a, we've got a bunch of DiCaprio movies we could do in the future. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. DiCaprio definitely get there. Um, we have a movie coming up that, again, I was like, well, half of these people could be a six timers and they've had like two episodes. So. Yeah. Those, I think... Uh, lots to look forward to. Lots to look forward to. I do think we'll probably have multiple 10-timers in the coming yeah. year. Well, we'll see. Uh, from Peter, what were the group watches in the TIFF house? We so uh, Leading up to TIFF, we said like 15 movies. We were like, oh, well, we'll watch that in there. We gotta watch that. Movie. We'll watch that when we're at TIFF. We'll watch it together. It'll be so fun. You really Not do, a single movie. <laughs> you really do underestimate how much... Uh, sleep becomes a priority when you're doing a film yes. festival like that. Our schedules, especially sort of later at night, didn't dovetail as well as we thought. We did, I will say, though, I believe it was our last night, get to sort of crash and watch a bunch of Trixie and Katya stuff on YouTube. We did a YouTube fun. night instead of watching a movie. What else did we... I feel like we, it wasn't just that. We watched some other... We did. We sort of dipped in and out of like various things, but I remember I did make you watch my favorite of their videos together, which is the sex explained thing on <laughs> Netflix, hosted by Janelle Monae. Wait, was that the one where if you have if a you brother, have a brother you're, gay? you're gay? Yeah. If yeah. you have a brother, you're gay. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. We laughed a lot. That was very fun. We were Casey very asks, loopy and punch drunk by that point. It was yeah. Uh, at that point, all we festival. had were five minutes of yep. brain capacity yep. at a time yep. totally. uh casey asks if michelle williams somehow wins this year will we get a new bet between you two for us to invest in since the yes. colin farrell one is over regardless yes we will we got so many questions about the bets <laughs> <laughs> we gotta do i feel like I'm, I'm just gonna keep throwing them out to you wildly chris and then you'll you'll latch on to something Right. Well, it was mean, definitely a couple weeks ago. I feel like I proposed something, and you kind of uh, uh, deflected it. But I can't. I'm remember walking what that into was the now. season with my tail between my legs because Michelle Williams is not uh, going to win. It was such. It was sewn up, Chris. We talked about this at TIFF. We were like, "Should we exchange the money on the same day? It'll be so funny. We're each like, we're going to break even because <laughs> like, uh, we're like, how should we do it? Because by that point, it was locked in. Michelle was winning Best Supporting Actress, and Colin was getting a Best Actor nomination, and it all uh, fell apart for you. I'm so sorry. To refresh for any listeners who may not yes. be aware yeah. or have yeah, forgotten yeah. the bets, we've had running bets going on the show. We had one that ended last year, and at this point, I forget what it was. But um, oh, it was I that lost. Meryl Streep. I know I lost. It, you bet that Meryl Streep would get nominated for the prom, and I didn't. Oh, right. And I no, won. That was two years ago. That was mostly me being a prick. But the prom um, was last year, Chris. The bet it was wasn't it? It was not two years ago. 
I'm oh, pretty sure it was Jesus. last year. Yeah. Um, the last year at this time, we were all zazzing. Like, remember? You remember. <laughs> remember we were Zaz. all doing it. Uh, when will my Zaz return from the war? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that has been my 2022 mood. When will my Zaz return from the war? I I have not found my Zaz this year. Um, the wait, the bets, bomb though. was 2020. You're totally right. I'm wrong. Oh well, that time has ceased to exist. Wow. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. The bets right. though were at the start of our podcast. The original bet was: Would Colin Farrell be an Oscar nominee within five years? I said no. Joe said yes. It's going to happen. I'm going to give Joe 50 bucks on nomination morning, basically. Yeah. yeah and yeah, then the not, other not bet before. was who will win an Oscar first, Amy Adams or Michelle Williams? Right. I said Michelle Williams. Joe said Amy Adams. We thought it would happen this year. Though, here's what I gonna. will. It was going to. Here's an idea I'm going to float. Okay. Because there has been category weirdness. I, I'm not saying this will happen. I'm saying I wouldn't be shocked if this happens. At this point, I don't think it's super likely. But... You think they the win with her? Stan, uh, the Lakeith Stanfield thing happened out of nowhere. And this supporting actress race is constantly in flux and fluid. And if there's enough people voting for her, I don't think that she's in a Winslet position that enough people are voting for her in both categories, but you do still keep seeing people saying that she is supporting. I wouldn't be surprised if suddenly she is the supporting nominee. This fascinates me. Fa- I don't I... think it's real, but I think <laughs> there's a slimmer You're putting it in the ether. You're putting the possibility a, in the that ether. That it could be a surprise. All right, all right. We'll see how it goes. Hunter asks, uh, what do you think it means that all three of the movies you pegged as the first movie of the class of have been stage adaptations? Cats, Wild Mountain Time, and Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, Hunter, you forgot that Welcome to Marwin was a <laughs> off-Broadway production, except it closed... It's easy to understand why Hunter would forget that. It closed so quickly because... Uh, you know, you could really only gather one audience member at a time because it was right. so small. You know, you can't really get a thousand people to watch tiny people. This joke didn't work. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? I, I, I would have yes-anded it, but I was tra- too busy trying to think of what 2022 movie with stage roots can we uh, add to this list? I mean, I think the season's still too in flux. People always ask us questions about what do we think is going to be a class of 2022 movie. I think it's still too in flux, especially after the shortlist just came out. Right. Um, A stage adaptation this year. What are we forgetting? Like Matilda, but like there's no like... That's there's not no real. Schadenfreude There's no there. actual buzz for that. That's just a Netflix movie. Yeah, but I feel like people are excited for that. I think there's a Matilda contingent out there that is like genuinely excited for that movie. But nobody's under any illusions that's going to get nominated for something. Right. You're right. Yes. Um. Yeah, I mean, like we've kind of talked about this before. It, a lot of things are stage adaptations. Why we've kind of fallen on them. Uh, also, Hunter, how dare you remind us that I'm going to have to watch Dear Evan Hansen? Yeah, it's going to happen. Uh, God. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is just like that is kind of a guarantee for you know, especially mm. if you are a noteworthy or 
uh, previously award-winning show, you know, it yeah. feels like it's kind of a carryover thing. Yeah, um, I think it's definitely, it's sort of like being based on a prize-winning novel. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of the same thing. as like, there is baked in expectation and prestige there. So, yeah. I think the reason for us selecting those first is there's a lot of schadenfreude involved, and our listeners do love yes. that. Yes. Um, uh, shout out to good. our Cats episode, The Pinnacle of the Form. Yes. <laughs> okay, Grace asked a total uh, goblin mode question, and I love it. I'm going to be quizzing Joe on this. She offered us a little mini quiz. Oh, right. Uh, Shit. I fell in love with, uh, and we're going to trust her answers. Uh, can you guess which four thoughts movie soundtracks appear most often in figure skating programs? IMDb game style. Grace has challenged you to do the known four for Thob movie soundtracks in I love figure this. skating. I am just going to unilaterally trust that Grace's answers are correct because I <laughs> So my first thought was a movie that isn't eligible because it got Oscar nominations and actual wins because I do feel like I notice that like Memoirs of a Geisha's score shows up a lot in figure skating. Um, That's interesting. I'll give you a little hint to kind of steer you. All mm -hmm. four of these movies are in the first hundred episodes we've done. (laughs) Okay. That is a good hint. All right. So, and can I ask another hint? Are they all strictly um, instrumental scores or are some of them like musical that could have, like, songs with lyrics. Well, I'm not sure if there's instrumental being used. One of them is definitely a musical that I'd be more willing to bet is it's songs being skated to. Skated to? Is that how you say that? Yeah. Yeah. They skate to them. Um, All right. I would watch a figure skating routine set to any song from this movie. (laughs) Is it? Oh, God. Because my first hundred episodes, my first guest was Rent. No, it's not okay. In terms of the instrumental, skating to one song, Glory. I ask you. Well, they've started to allow people to skate to songs with lyrics now, and I feel like the crossover between Theater Kid and Figure Skater Kid is like not as far apart from each other. So. Do a, you know, high concept rent where Maureen Johnson is a figure skater and does a skating Honestly, routine yes. to Over the Moon. Is one of the instrumentals um, Seven Years in Tibet? No. Damn. Thought I had it there. Not okay. a bad guess, because if I remember correctly, that's a Gabriel Yared score? I think that's right. I think that's yeah. right. Um, is one of the scores... Um, I'm thinking of like early, early. This had Oscar buzz stuff. Is one of the scores? How about this? Midnight in the Garden this. of Good and Evil? No, but you're not far off with Seven Years in Tibet, and it is very early, as in single digits. This had Oscar buzz episode. One of our first nine. Okay. Um, you maybe and, forgot we did this movie. Oh golly. Okay. Um. Is it 1492 Conquest of Paradise? 1492 Conquest of Paradise. I bet it's the Enigma song, too. Yeah, that's a good... All right, all right. So I got one. Get the musical. Get the musical. Hairspray. 
No. We had a guest for this musical. We had a guest for Hairspray. Okay. We did. Um, that was Cameron Sheets. That's West Cameron. Shout out. Double shout out, Cam. Not not bad. Okay. Um, a guest for a musical, Burlesque. Burlesque. Scholar Fuck, Scholar that's amazing. I Don't you want to watch any song from Burlesque in a figure 100%. skating routine? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, two more Shout movies. out, Oliver. Uh, no guests, or yes, there's one guest for one of these movies. One was a mailbag. This is wait, if, the mailbag one is going to make you so happy that people figure. Wait, to it. say that again. Uh, two movies left. One yeah. of them we had a guest. The other it was a mailbag movie. What do you mean was a mail or not a mailbag movie? It was a listener's choice. Sorry. Gotcha. Okay. You were like, what? One we had a guest, one was a listener's choice. Okay. Um oh, what were our listeners' choices? Was was um Shipping News in our first one hundred? I don't think so. No. Shipping News was like a year ago. Yeah, shipping news was when and it famously never won a listener's choice, though it was in every single one, and we just did it and we were like, We're doing this, fuck you. Right, right. Um, what were our listeners' choice winners? Shoot, I'm bad at. I will tell you, that. it was not Widows, though. Much like Disney on Ice, I would love to see Widows on Ice. Yes. Okay. I do um, believe this was our first listeners' choice. Episode seven would have had to no, have because our first listeners' choice was episode fifty, so it would have been our second. Okay. Is I'm just going to skip to the one with the guest. I'm trying to think of like our early guests. Is it Pan? It's not Pan, but it is a movie starring someone that we said would definitely make it to our ten timers club. Oh, who I Ruffalo? This 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 is the mo- this is the known for wild card of these four movies that I was like, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. Is it um uh is it so is it a Judy? It's a Judy Dench. Is it Ladies in Lavender? It's Ladies in Lavender. I can't. I can't. That's amazing. Shout Who's out to, to Danita Steinberg. Danita, if you're listening, I please uh know that uh Ladies in Lavender is uh f- apparently very frequently uh part of ice skating routine. Oh wait, I got the listener's choice one. Oh, yeah. it's so good. It's I I would watch anybody skate to this. The soundtrack is so good. It's Cloud Atlas, right? It's Cloud Atlas. I would melt into nothingness watching somebody figure skate beautifully to the Cloud Atlas score. It's so good. Ah. What a great question. Thank Grace, you. Whose question was thank that? Thank you for Grace. this. Thank you for bringing chaos Fantastic. and to Yes. The thank you, Grace. We have another Gary question. Gary asks, if Drag Ugh. Race did it this head Oscar Buzz themed episode, what would it look like? What's the mini challenge, the main challenge, and the runway theme? What is also the lip sync song? Which all stars succeed in Who Goes Home? I went so deep into preparing for this one <laughs> then like, I'm, go- to- I'm just gonna give it to you however i think if you have a quintessential this had oscar buzz drag race all-star the person who marries the highbrow the lowbrow the stupid and hopefully the smart i think it's katya like katya Ka- is well, winning this challenge to me stay tuned stay tuned 
Um, okay, give give us your uh, also shout out to a friend and former guest Matthew Rodriguez, who's been doing the Drag Race Simulator on Simulator for like yes. everything. It's been very fun. Yeah, the, this All right. is our version of that mini challenge. I said, it's get into quick drag of your favorite Oscar nominations presenter and give the most dramatic recitation of the nominees possible. And I forgot to say who would win that, but I'm just going to say that it was probably like, you know what? No, Mariah Paris Balenciaga deserves a mini challenge win. And I'm gonna <laughs> I was going to say her. the mini challenge should be you're presenting the nominees of a category, but it's actually a reading challenge. Oh, and you're just going down the list of nominees. That's not a bad one. That's not a bad one. Right. Well, in that case, like for her performance as a busted drag queen in Busted Drag Queen <laughs> the Musical, nice. Nicole Page Brooks from Atlanta, Georgia. A winner of that is a returning Delta Work who has sharpened her uh, her reading skills with her podcast. Okay, yeah. no, but the main challenge of this <laughs> is uh, Fuckabees, the Naomi Watts musical, and. <gasps> Yes. Amazing. So uh, your top all-stars of the week. Oh, also Runway Theme, uh, which is not related to Naomi, but it's Night of a Thousand Cats, of course. That was the first thing that I thought of. Absolutely. Everybody dresses up as their favorite character from Cats. Uh, Top all-stars. I said Ms. Cracker and Jujubee do the Naomi Robin Wright roles from Adore in the (laughs) Rusical. Um, Katya obviously plays the Russian hooker from St. Vincent and Kennedy Davenport sings black stockings, white shoes shouldn't be allowed in the church in character as Naomi from J. Edgar. Black stockings, white shoes shouldn't be allowed in the church. Uh, singing to J. Edgar, uh, at that point, uh, Kennedy and Katya are your top two of the week. So they uh, lip sync for your life uh, in a, you know, reprise of their legendary face off in season seven. This time it's two big eyes by Lana Del Rey. I was going to say the lip sync song should be alone yet. Not alone. (laughs) Also perhaps that Um, Kennedy wins. She sends home Valentina who did Diana on the in the Naomi Watts Rusical and was a disappointment, and then whose Bomb Ballerina runway was also underwhelming. So that is our uh, Thob-themed uh, Drag Race All-Stars episode. Zach is also bringing the chaos, asking us, you two are put in charge of designing a new theme park. Each of the lands within its Within it is based on a Thobby Studio, uh, Focus Features, Sony Pictures Classics, Searchlight. What are some of the rides and themed restaurants? And who are the walk-around characters in addition to Danny Collins? First of all, Danny Collins is like the Universal Studios, like, Beetlejuice rock concert. That's like, you know, when you, there's, there's rides in theme parks, but there's also like shows. Obviously, you get a Danny Collins show every 45 minutes of him just coming out doing Hey Baby Doll. So I want to hear your answer to this one because uh, I went I mean, deep on again, Drag Race. I want to hear yours. There's more than just rides. So in the Focus Features lands, you have a Wild West show of two shirtless horny cowboys wrangling up some <laughs> sheep. Um, and then you might see them make out. 
And then you have, uh, it's being narrated by a homophobic prospector uh, giving <laughs> Randy Quaid drag. No, no. I thought for Focus Land, you could have uh, every once in a while, someone just rides a motorbike through the park as Ryan Gosling from mm-hmm. The Place Beyond the Pines. I think that's an idea that could uh, that could happen. A motorcycle ride. In the Sony Pictures Classic Land, you know, the walk-around characters are obviously all of the Almodovar women. Mm, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. Played like by that. drag queens and sometimes not. I feel like Fox Searchlight could have the most, like, ready-made IRL park because you'd have a big sh- uh, Shape of Water exhibit and, like, Yes, an underwater ride. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what are your other big SPC like that would or a uh, big big searchlight rather I feel um, like searchlight is more the like Halloween nights of our park uh, it's like okay. that's when you have like a black swan show that's oh, okay. like horror that's I would absolutely have... go see the black swan I would wait in line for a while to get into the black swan <laughs> show yeah for sure but then you also have like the iconic uh, like costume show where you have a Juno walking around <laughs> Just somebody in a Juno pregnant belly just, just walking just around. Just a pregnant teenager. <laughs> but every once in a while, but then, then somebody ha- somebody embedded in the crowd, like, uh, emotionally crouches down and, and touches her belly. And it's you, and that's that's an employee as well doing the Jennifer Listen, Halloween is also about straight people, and straight people loved, still love to go, uh, straight couples go as Juno and Polly Bleaker. Polly Bleaker, yeah. Right, that's true. right, right. I do think, however, if these are separated into lands, you know, the lands are always connected by some type of monorail that no one wants to ride, and right. that is our Bleaker Street Pictures monorail. No, I like that. I think that's yeah. good. Yeah. Good question. Gary asked a fun question, another Gary, about us and wants to know what our Myers Briggs types are. Oh, I okay. Love this Here we question go. Because it got to torture Joe with it. And I made I fucking hate Myers Briggs. I, I have to I say. Know my, I love a self actualization exercise. Listen, Myers Briggs, astrology, uh, it's all about self actualization. I, I took the quiz that I sent to you and I still got, I'm an ENFJ. I always test as an ENFJ. I'm a very high J. Um, okay. Listen, I like I, I like making lists. I like checking things off the list. I like making decisions and moving on. What is a that. J? What does the J mean? I don't know what these letters mean. Uh, J and uh, J and P. Like if you're a judger, that's a lot about like making decisions, moving on from things, uh, uh, like task completion kind of perceivers like to take their time with making decisions whereas like a j you know moves towards closure a p might be someone who wants to like weigh options etc i see so you thought that you would be able to guess mine i definitely think you are probably an fp um if i had to like really nail something down i would think you're probably an esfp well, you got the second part right, but not the, oh. I am, uh, my, okay. So here's what it said. My personality type is mediator. Okay. I am an INFP dash T. Interesting. Okay. Well, I, I don't, don't know, know much means. about the A and T part of it, but I've done like Myers-Briggs. Uh, I have a, a friend who's a Myers-Briggs scholar, blah, 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 blah. So T I'm is like that. turbulent or something like that, right? Like I'm fucking Deborah Winger or something like that. Uh, 
I I was looking into it. I, I that I I can't really speak to as much. I was also a T. Um, because A was like aggressive. T, I think it seemed. <laughs> I I can't speak to it, so I don't want to speak to it on here. You're an okay. INFP. That is not super surprising. I figured you're probably somewhere between introverted and extroverted. Yeah, I mean, I they gave me a whole thing with percentages, but I didn't save it. I just saved the top line score because whatever. They probably emailed it to me, but. Uh, yes, and your your uh, name from this website was Mediator. Mine was Protagonist. Talk about main character syndrome. Oh, wow. Wow, that's a read. Um, Jeez. Here's the thing. I treat this the same way I treat astrology, which is it gets me on a couple, but ultimately I feel like misses the greater picture. Like in general, this at least has some science involved. And science, that's not like the alignment of planets. You know, this is a lot. There's a lot of like. Uh, study that's gone into and like I was making the fantastic Mr. Fox quote science when I said science by the way. (laughs) No, there is science. Can't see me. Uh, Next question, also from Gary. What's the most unhinged double feature of previous This Had Oscar Buzz movies you could program at a festival? Uh, Looping back to previous episodes, I would say this isn't going to be at a festival, but this is the theater that we're running that we are constantly programming, uh, much like the New Beverly in Los Angeles run program by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Speaking of Quentin Tarantino, he's the part of my double feature i would do natural born killers and suspiria just to like completely stress people out for like six hours yes uh the gary that asked this question said secretary and secretariat that is very funny yeah um i mean i don't know how you can do it i mean this is probably a basic answer but i don't know how you do it without doing cats and i feel like i'm gonna program the judy dench monstrosity double feature and it's cats and the shipping news mm, that's really good a uh, friend and former guest jorge molina i believe uh, asked us a question because this question and ended with uh this is jorge by the way or something like that so, <laughs> uh, i don't know if that's jorge molina or if this we is love you, uh, jorge. another jorge who was like oh yeah i have to put my name in uh either uh-huh. way we love you yeah um this is a question that we sometimes get asked regarding Emmys and television. Mm. Um, Jorge asks, in your opinion, what would make a This Had Emmy Buzz contender? Is it prestige talent, awards-winning writers, etc., uh, based on IP? And what contenders uh, would you want to cover in a hypothetical podcast spinoff? So I think by nature of the the Emmys having nine million categories, mm, it's yeah. really hard to have something that some, got nothing like that fully blanks. I think yeah. the only answer that I can think of recently is Yellowstone, right? Because Yellowstone was it completely blanked at last mm, year's Emmys? After I don't know if it was completely this expensive campaign. I don't know if it was completely blanked, but you could definitely. I think you would have to like. Just be like something that was like blanked of major nominations or something like that. I thought, I think you can't really do prestige talent in this way because like TV, you know, talent is sort of everywhere on television, right? Like you like, I can't, you can't, you can't judge by like, okay, so a good contender maybe would be like that Showtime show, The First Ladies. And that's like talent up the wazoo, right? 
But I think it's like you never can tell with this. I thought my, the first thing that came to my mind was something like The Gilded Age, which I think before it premiered, mm-hmm. we were sort of looking at as being like something prestige heavy. And then it premiered and it's like, oh, fun trash. I love it. <laughs> and and then ultimately it was an Emmy afterthought. But I also thought of – remember that miniseries Empire Falls based on the Pulitzer yes. Prize winning novel that was Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman's That won a last... significant Emmy though, right? Did no? it? I forget. I feel like in my memory it was a bit of a disappointment, but I could be wrong. And um, this, this question was asked in a context of a limited series type of thing. Right. Um, let me look up Empire Falls really quick because I, I just remember that that was – HBO put a lot of Ballyhoo into that before it um, – before it premiered, and I don't think it it delivered. I think they wanted because it was not too long after Angels in America, and Angels right. in America was like the template for what they wanted to do with a big splashy prestige miniseries. Mm-hmm. And this, obviously, oh, Paul Newman did win supporting actor in a miniseries That's what I or movie. So you're right. Um, that was him and and Joanne Woodward's, I believe, last <laughs> screen project together. Right? I don't think. Uh, uh they mentioned in the last movie stars that um so Mr. Good. and Mrs. Bridge was the last movie that they had done together. And they sort of uh skirted around um Empire Falls a little bit. It's not great, but like it has its moments, I will say. Um, I should watch it. And it did get a bunch of nominations, so I'm totally wrong. It wouldn't have been a, a contender. Uh the other thing I thought of though, and this did definitely get some major nominations, but I think in terms of falling short of expectation, I think uh the undoing from a few years ago that uh mm-hmm. you know, I think people were really expecting to be like Nicole Kidman's big follow-up to Big Little Lies. I thought it was really good, but I was definitely in the minority by the end of that show that like a lot of people thought. I it was never good. watched it and people were so across the board on that show. I feel like because of the nature of the Emmys, it's hard to I mean, if you were gonna do totally. some something like what we do, it's hard to do a one to one in terms of criteria. But right. I think probably the more interesting I mean, free idea. <laughs> the more interesting idea is kind of a history of hbo miniseries and limited series i would definitely um, because that. like that's the majority of what you're going to be talking about you would be talking about anyway. i would absolutely dig into like the hbo tv movies of the 90s when they like mm-hmm. alan rickman in rasputin or like um <laughs> uh like there were so many like the one like obviously like i'm not going to be rushing to a james woods miniseries but like the one where james woods played roy Cohn. do you remember that or like yes. mcmartin the or indictment the mcmartin trial speaking of james woods things that like i loved <laughs> that movie um they had a like every year they were nominated for at least like two tv movies in that category and they were all like kind of interesting projects in that like they never seemed like they were pandering in any way to like get people to you know watch and they were just like we're just going to be like weird and esoteric and like do our own thing um i don't know i would love to to listen to somebody do a podcast on that somebody do it i'll and have me on as a guest i'd listen (laughs) uh let's get into some questions about the current oscar race yeah monica says or asks uh which actor or actress gave the performance of the year and why so I think the boring answer that I have for this is that it is probably Kate Blanchett. And like right. it's I mean, hard to avoid. But like I hate you're right to say that's the boring answer because it's like it, it feels is. like we never 
got I mean it feels like it's the performance of the year cuz it's one we're going to be talking about for years but like yeah. it feels like it was just claimed as that and never really unpacked I mean it feels I like I feel like I've heard people unpacking that for like months I feel like I all I ever hear is people talking about how great Tar is and how great she is and But do you really feel like we've unpacked the idiosyncrasies of that performance I've heard a lot of people digging into it. I don't know. Maybe that's just I don't me. know. Um, I mean, I, I went think for it's like, the easy answer. I think it is. I went for two that have not been showing up anywhere in awards conversation that I think deserve to be at the like very top of their lists. Uh, if not in the number one slot, then like in the least top two or three. Uh, and that would be Jack Loudon in Benediction and Rebecca Thank Hall you. in Resurrection. I think those two performances are so good and I get why they haven't been coming up because their movies were so small and like the releases were barely there but both of them great. on my ballot both I would consider I mean like for me yeah. personally like I won't be putting Tar at my number 1 or Kate Blanchett at my number 1 because of the kind of ubiquity of them even if I feel like you know they belong there but like my personal choices on top of the two you mentioned which like will both be on my ballots for you know the things that I'm voting for mm-hmm. um I would also add the two that I'm maybe maybe waffling on are uh Tilda Swinton in The Eternal Daughter sure and Tong Wei in Decision to Leave um yeah, the, those would probably be, if not Jack Loudon, um, and not Kate Blanchett, because I know plenty of people will be voting for Kate Blanchett. But if I'm yeah. throwing my personal bids, I would throw out those two. As far as the why, I'm still, uh, you know, we can maybe answer that in some other questions. But for at least decision to leave, Tong Wei is a fucking, uh, I mean, global powerhouse. I think uh, that movie almost hinges on. M- her performance for me in terms of what I love about that movie. Yeah. Um, and then dodges all of the things that are maybe like, <laughs> while that's a movie that might make my like top 25, uh, yeah. the, the snags I have with that movie or maybe the limitations I have with it, uh, are not at all in that performance. Yeah. And I think if, you know, you're talking about like, uh, a gone girl type of female performance or, you know, something in that, vein that's just so delicious tongue way is right there yeah i think i'm a little bit more negative even than you are on decision to leave and i think tongue way is great in that movie but i think i'm also probably a little bit more muted on how much i'm into her i think just in general that movie is not something that's going to show up on any of my lists uh the first half hour 45 minutes of that movie are so dense that it it you know it, it's See, divisive to me. You and I are opposite. You think it's weakest at the beginning. I think it's weakest at the end. Oh, I think that I think the last hour of that movie is yeah uh, uh, such a ride, um, and mostly because of her performance. Kyler asks, "I would love to know your personal favorite line readings of the year." Line readings are tough. Line readings and like scores, which to get ahead of us a little bit, uh, which is an upcoming question. I tend to not really internalize until I've seen movies maybe a second time or mm-hmm. whether things sort of like filter into the culture. But I will say, uh, the one that sticks out at me still is when Judith Ivy towards the end of Women Talking says, thank you, Melvin, to, oh. uh, to Melvin after, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, he helps out with the children and you wonder what is this movie going to end up saying about this character who 
these women don't seem like they have a rubric to address, you know, a a transgender character in a way that maybe we're sort of I don't know I was I was a little bit nervous of maybe what was going to come of it and just that very simple very empathetic and knowing like her character sort of knows that this is important to Melvin to be you know addressed the way he wants to be addressed and it's really lovely in a way that I think that movie is in general like very quietly affecting. So I liked it. Um, I mean, uh, this is the question where I have less hesitation to be like, well, Kate Blanchett and Tar because, uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Even I'm... in German, I am Petra's father is yeah. Yeah. like, uh, 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 barn burner. Shut yeah. it down. I will get you. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, yeah, that, yes, yeah. that, Several moments of Tar would sure. uh, probably be it for me. What about yeah. Beethoven? You and him? Uh, the little, <laughs> like, jazz hands? Uh, yes. Uh, well, that, that whole Juilliard scene is just banger after banger, too. Banger. Like, banger. Yeah. Um, uh, incredible. Incredible. Um, uh, Max asks, what are your favorite movies of 2022, and why isn't it Bones and All? Um it might be Bones and All. No, Bones and All is in my top favorite. ten, Max. It uh, keeps I figure creeping. this is the question about, we can talk about Bones and All a little bit. Um, talk about Bones and All. I want to hear you talk about Bones and All. I understand the divisiveness of it. It is It is maybe the movie this year that I'm like, if people don't like it, I get it. I get it. If people totally. think it's bad, I get it. But like, I loved this movie. I, I love Luca Guadagnino in the movies that are maybe... I mean, Suspiria is pretty divisive. I, oh, yeah. I think people I hinge say. a lot on um, Call Me By Your Name. And there's even the, like, I am love people that I'm like, I get it. But those are not the ones that, like, make me love him as a filmmaker. Right. To me, this is one. I mean, it's brand new. I've only seen it once. So I can't maybe say it's my second favorite movie of his. But I would maybe say that behind A Bigger Splash. Um yeah. Where it's like you kind of, it's these long game movies that you have to stick with to kind of realize what it's doing. I mean, yeah. I think it's as likely as it is a metaphor for any number of things as it is none of them. Yeah. Um, I think I walked out of that the movie. Honesty of what the terms of this story are with the cannibalism and you know, yeah. young love. And I think I walked out of that movie feeling like, oh, I wish that movie would have kind of broke open a little bit more and really sort of like became you know more of you know more dynamic or something but like as I've sat with it since seeing it and that was in October it's really really it sit well with me and the more I remember it the more I remember the things that I liked about it even the things that I think are not good about it like Mark Rylance still feels like it he fits in a way that like even me thinking he's kind of bad is it works in a way for this movie and i do love when a performance that's kind of bad still works for a good movie so um i like that i think i was talking with my friend lewis yesterday about the scene of the carnival where chalamet seduces and then kills the carnival worker 
And it's like, it's so hot, but like in a way that it shouldn't be. And I love that kind of shit. And um, it's a good depiction of cruising. I will say that. It was really good. Um, so yeah, I liked it. I liked Bones and All a lot. It's creeping up my list. I really respond. I mean, like the movie was shot, I believe, entirely in Ohio, rural Ohio, which like I don't live in rural Ohio, but like I've gone through those places. I've stayed in those places. And like it kept even though it's not, um, you know, it's filmed there, but not all entirely set there. I think it captures that type of town that type of life that type of feeling when you are raised in that type of environment so incredibly well um that i it was almost emotional just from that aspect of it yeah uh to answer the first part of the question my favorite movie of the year and i don't see a challenge challenger at that point at this point is uh joanna hogg's the eternal daughter uh it kind of gets me in a lot of different stylistic places that I'm just sorry I'm just going to love a movie uh set in an old manor in the middle of the woods somewhere um yeah. in the British Isles <laughs> um but I think also thematically where that movie goes uh yeah. is just kind of where my head is sitting uh in these times as I uh encroach 40 I'm um, still even sitting it's with not about a 40 year old <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, um, I'm sitting with my favorites of 2022. I'm going to maybe keep those a little bit close to the You got some more to watch. Moment. That's I okay. Do. And uh, uh, listeners should look out for the this year's Mikey's. Yes. Yeah. Coming uh, in the new year. Yes. Friend of the show, Jordan Valu wants us to talk about whatever's going on in Best Director Race. Yes. Okay. So we teased this a little bit um, in our Man in the Iron Mask, I believe, episode. Um or maybe it was I think in it our... feels like that race in particular is in flux every single week. This is the thing. And I think it's a really fascinating race because there's a lot of really strong Best Picture contenders, and almost all of them have a strong director presence in them. It's and... feeling very 2017. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I think the two that you can probably... Even that, when I say... like, I think the one you can set in stone is Daniels for everything everywhere all at once. I don't see them missing. I don't I would, see them or Spielberg missing. I was about to say Spielberg as well, but I also feel like in a sort of like Denis Villeneuve for Dune kind of a way, that like if there's a shocking omission, it wouldn't shock me that Spielberg would miss just because I feel like we're in a very taking him for granted kind of a space. I understand that. I understand both of those arguments. I just wonder if that is a movie that is going to be perceived differently by the industry. That's very possible. It's very possible. Because I think if of I'm his talking, stature? Yeah. I think if we're talking a second tier, I think that's where your Martin McDonough, uh, your Todd Field, your Baz Luhrmann, who I think is like getting closer and closer to being a likely nominee at this I point. Think, <laughs> I think it's going to be very weird that Baz Luhrmann's first Best Director nomination is for Elvis, but I think it's yeah. quite possibly well, going to happen famously, again. Famously snubbed for Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Um, I think you also maybe put maybe put James Cameron in this tier. Like, I feel like the... we I don't think we've settled yet on what Avatar is going to be in this year's Oscar race. 
I think we are settling on that more and more as we speak. But I think a Best Picture nominee is likely. I think a Best Director nominee is maybe. I want to talk about this in an upcoming question. Okay. All right. Um, Because I I I have bigger things to say about Avatar. So Um, outsider contenders, though, I want to talk about this because I think... Todd Field and Tar feels like taking up that slot that feels, you know, very... um, And I I mean, I think that's a Best Picture nominee, too. But I think a lot of the energy that people, you know, spend looking for something that's a little bit more appealing to the director's branch that, you know, might not land in Best Picture, you know, speaks specifically to the taste of that branch, like the global taste of that branch, the more, you know, formalist taste of that branch, I think... Todd Field could be uh, taking up some of that energy in a way that it's like we all of these are going to match with Best Picture. Maybe there's not an international feature that shows up. Um, well, getting into that, though, I do feel like the more and more we get into the season, I think SS Rajamuli for RRR is a definite possibility. I think more so than I think early in the season, people were looking at Ruben Ostland and Park Chan-wook. And I think those movies have been a lot quieter in the season thus far. I'm very curious to see if Triangle of Sadness will end up being a slow and steady movie that ends up doing really well with Oscar, or right. like, or we not. could be talking about it on the show at some point. The other um, director that I think is interesting to throw into this mix, though, is... And you can uh, talk about the, the foreign language directors, too, after this, but like... Gina Prince, by the way, has been showing up on mm-hmm. some list, and like one of them is Critics' Choice, and you know I don't put a lot of faith in Critics' Choice. Especially and the other one, we'll get into this question too. Well, and the other one I think was the M for G's, right? She was a nominee, right, at M for G's for Best Director, which is not like an influencer on the Oscar race, but her name's out there a lot more than you know maybe people were predicting, and. I just think it's interesting. And that is a movie that you could, if you really dig that movie, you look at that and you're like, that is, that movie is directed. You know what I mean? Like that is a triumph of directing. So possibly. Very curious. Uh, And then Damien Chazelle. Like we haven't even talked about Damien Chazelle. We don't know how people are going to receive that. Exactly. We both have to see that movie too. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) The weather today. Um, Yeah. Next question. Joe asks us, what's your favorite performance in a film you didn't like this year? It's an interesting question. I'm normally... curious about your answer. Yeah, I think film I didn't like is a little tricky because I get into like, well, it's not my favorite, but maybe it's like, you know, whatever. Um, I initially thought of someone like Greta Gerwig in White Noise. I don't really dig that movie, but I think she's good. Um, somebody like Toby Jones in Empire of Light, which like, I don't think, I don't hate that movie. I don't think it's successful. I really, really liked him in a small role in that. I think I didn't dislike Bodies, 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 but Rachel Sennett's contribution to that movie so far outpaces everything about that movie Mm -hmm. that like, she's great. Everything about that movie is like at best good. 
And that, I feel like everything about that movie is at best just not working. Yeah, you don't like that movie. I kind of I like, like that, that movie, movie, but I love Rachel Sennett. I think the other two that I have on my list, I really was very annoyed by Michael Bay's Ambulance, but I thought Jake Gyllenhaal was great in it. Um, <laughs> Under no fucking circumstances am I watching Ambulance. Yeah. I understand that everybody loves it ironically or like ironically loves it not ironically like uh, uh, pass <laughs> you're getting into layers now it's getting into layers uh no, and then but the that's other what, one people want to ironically love that movie unironically and i'm yeah I'm sitting this one out guys i'm good it's very annoying it's a very annoying you i got in there and i started watching it and i was like right i don't like michael bay movies and this is why <laughs> like that was but like but i think jake is is a lot of fun in doing uh, a, a good and interesting job the other one that we talked about on our sundance episode uh ages ago but christopher abbott in on the count of three which is a movie that released this year and didn't really do much of anything i really gotta disagree with people who love that performance oh i loved it i thought and that's an actor i love yeah i thought it was wonderful uh i have two answers for this not for movies that i dislike but movies that i am very much on the middle of and have complicated feelings about both one also from this year's sundance that we uh would have talked about is scott speedman and lena dunham sharp stick sure. uh you are going love, to bat for scott speedman this year i love it. i fucking love that performance he's incredible um i don't and, see it but I, i'm glad that you do so i'm excited to revisit it because i think that movie is on hbo max i'm today. excited to never see that movie ever <laughs> i understand i want to revisit it just to maybe solidify how I feel about that movie because conversely, I loved Catherine called Birdie this year, a movie no one is oh, talking me about. Too. And is fantastic. What a lovely movie. What a great um, cast. Andrew Scott will also be on, I have two Lena Dunham supporting actors on Maniac. my ballot this year. Andrew Scott will also Andrew be Scott's on. great in that movie. Everybody in that movie I think is so good. Uh that's also good. I probably will vote for that movie for best ensemble. Uh Watch Captain My it's other one, which is a performance, I'm kind of surprised that I feel like I'm the only person going to bat for what I think is a pretty unexpected in what she's doing and what she pulls off um, performance that really has stuck with me and grown in a way that like my half in half out feelings on the movie have stayed pretty firm is Anne Hathaway and Armageddon Time. Um, oh, see, I just liked Armageddon Time. So, like, that's not a contender for, for this question for me. I feel like the second hour of that movie kind of blows aside everything that's really great about the first hour of that movie. And okay. that's really complicated and complex and nuanced. And I think as soon as he gets to that private school and as soon as the fucking Trumps show up in that movie, <laughs> it does all of the most obvious things. And it's like... it's a complete 180 from the type of complexity and the type of examination of, you know, assimilation uh, in that's happening in the first hour. I don't think there's anything you learn from the second hour of that movie, maybe with the exception of Anthony Hopkins's really good final scene that you didn't learn in a much more interesting and nuanced and unexpected way in the first. Um, But Anne Hathaway is doing this is playing a certain type of like monstrous parenting uh, and self-preservational type of parenting and you know not saying everything that she thinks that's like her own weight and uh you know 
uh, complicity, uh, but also trying to force her. There's this scene in the stairwell where she like shoves her son's face in a way that yeah. I found so completely disarming and so honest and yeah. kind of very unexpected from Anne Hathaway for me. Um, that I, I I do really love that performance in that movie. I have a lot of complicated thoughts about. Cool. Uh, different Anne. Anne asks us with <laughs> no, so many it's so-called the same Anne. It's Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway sent this question. Yeah. Uh, so many mainstream uh, contenders this year, and a guaranteed ten nominees. How do? How many do you think crack the Best Picture lineup? Is there room for Everything Everywhere, Elvis, Top Gun, Maverick, Glass Onion, and Avatar two? Uh, and if not. Uh, who ends up on the outside looking in. I think the one that's definitely on the outside looking in at this point is Wakanda Forever. Yes. I like. I seem to like that movie more than everyone else. Um, I liked it. Which is surprising. I, I definitely liked it. Yeah. I, I don't like those movies, and I like that movie because I feel like it is actually about something that's not, you know, pew pew, bang bang. The other ones um, are about something too, but it's fine. We don't have to have that <laughs> Not all of them. Uh... But uh, I, I, f- I was really kind of surprised for this, like, it's not just grief about Chadwick Boseman. I think that the movie is kind of trying to deal with death in a certain way that's complex. The movie's been out for forever and everyone's yeah. hot, so we can talk about it. I think the scene that Shuri is kind of like, well, I don't really believe in any of the kind of religion of you know right. the culture that i'm a part of and then when she goes to you know the the mysticism of like you see a past loved one when you become a black panther and she has killmonger show up so it's like the kind right. of chaos of and the grappling with how do i persist as someone who's supposed to be a leader when i have no religious dogma does it also open me up to darkness i think is an interesting question I unfortunately think Shuri is the weak link of that movie. And I think that scene in particular, I like your take on it. Your take on it gives me something to think about it. I mostly feel like once that happens, it just sort of takes me out of the movie and it's just like, oh, right. Like they couldn't get Chadwick Boseman to film this. So obviously this is was their workaround and sort of then my mind goes out to like the, how they had to work around it. Sure. I understand that. And I understand that it's hard for people to not see the strings of that. I right. Mean, I, I, I ultimately think they took the a challenge and asked some interesting questions about like death and faith, et cetera, sure. um, that I wouldn't have expected from a movie like that. Yeah. Um, to, <laughs> to the question. To answer the question, excuse me. Um, We've had the this only time you will really hate me yeah. talking about superhero movies. Um, we had this conversation, has... interestingly, with Katie a little bit in our group chat, though, about like, and she made a really good point, which is, it's probably very healthy for the best picture category and for the Oscars to have a year where even if it's stuff that like movies that I don't really love, like Top Gun Maverick and Avatar 2, to add those into a category that already has everything everywhere and Elvis and maybe Glass Onion. I hope, I hope Glass Onion can make it. Um, and something like RRR, if that makes it in, like these sort of big crowd pleaser. A lot of these movies made money. And something that shows, because I think there are people, there's a tone out there, and you see it in some of these outlets too. And in not all, and in outlets who I don't normally feel like are snake in the grass outlets, who seem to be waiting to pounce 
on the Oscars this year for nominating movies that didn't make any money. People seem really, really pissed off that mid-budget and smaller movies didn't make any money this year and feel ready to pounce on the Oscars if the Oscars don't go for these big movies. And I think the point that Katie made to us, which is this is a year that they can nominate big moneymakers in a way that doesn't feel like they're reaching too much. And I'm like, right. that. yes, that's a good point. And, and I subscribe to that. My answer, which is my petulant answer, but it's also my real answer, is people... Uh, the the idea that Best Picture nominees are not movies that make money is not necessarily true. No, when you but look like we have back this, at the past we, decade, I could, we we have to have this conversation all the fucking time, fucking and it's year. never true. Movies I'm so that, tired. Just, what people mean when they say this is they want superhero and franchise movies in Best Picture. Then just say that. That's fi- that's fine if that's the honest thing that you want to right. actually say. My. F- my question. What they're saying, Chris, though, is I want the movies that I saw to be in the best picture right. race. And people are seeing a, a narrower and narrower range of movies. And I think that's the problem. Right. I mean, there's plenty of years recently where there are plenty of movies that make over $100 million that are nominated for best picture. Exactly. We've had this conversation before, Hundreds but it's like the conversation never really seems to get around to that. It is, you're very right. It's not, we want movies that make money. It's, I want movies that have made money and that I personally that I saw. saw. Yeah. Um, however, the one that I do kind of feel like to answer Anne's question, I, I have, I'm putting a pin in Glass Onion because it literally is dropping on Netflix today. It does yes. feel like that movie has kind of vanished from conversation when it vanished from theaters and people have kind of moved on. So I'm curious to see if it really does bounce back into the conversation. God, I hope so. Um, I do have some skepticism about Avatar 2, and I like it way more than uh, Joe does, listeners. Yeah. I, I had a great time. I was very satisfied by Avatar 2, and I think there are some brilliant things it does in making it a more emotional experience, putting it in like a story told by teens in trying to cement its cultural place that, you know, part of the conversation was it never really had it, even though it made money. Um, I will say Avatar two actually does have, I definitely walked out of Avatar two with thoughts about characters in a way that I never did about Avatar 1. Avatar 1 was right. so purely archetypes, and at least Avatar 2 is at times a movie about dumb teens, and I at least enjoyed a couple of those dumb teens. So, like, <laughs> that was fun. I've also seen people saying that, like, Avatar 2 is regressive. I feel like that is not... I think that's overlooking the fact that Avatar 2 is about Jake Sully realizing that his ideas of himself as a man and as a father are not uh, uh, helpful and not right. good. And I, I think, think a lot of people hinge some of that idea that it's regressive on the idea that Neytiri feels like she's backburnered in a way. But every time Neytiri, Katie and I had this conversation, every yeah. time Neytiri shows up in that movie, it is all killer, no filler. See, um, I... I think Jake Sully and Natiri are both bad and uninteresting characters, just in general. Like, I just don't care. 
I think Neytiri's a little bit less interesting in this movie, but I do think that she is, again, all killer, no filler in this movie. What I, my, my hesitation about Avatar, and maybe it's just because immediately everyone was like, best picture, best director. And I even saw some people saying front runner, and I was like, Mm. calm down. It's partly because people responded so quickly, but I do feel like it is the movie that could fall prey to just like sequel snobbery because like there's plenty of conversation that there's like sequels potentially being in uh the best picture well the other problem that avatar one had was the reactions were so over the top positive and the box office was so huge that then i think it really opened the door for people who maybe waited a little bit to see it because they weren't super interested. And then they watch it and are like, I guess, you know what I mean? Like there there's, you really do leave so much space for people to be underwhelmed when the initial reactions are so over the top as they were for avatar Two. Like it's, it's, it's the thing that I think has been true about sequels and best picture in historically for Oscar, and I think could end up being true about Glass Onion, is like, where's the urgency to vote for this thing? Right. Um, right. Julia asks us, what's our thoughts on original score this year? We just had the short list, so I'm going to refresh. Yeah, you talk about uh, this because I'm bad at doing early score conversations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the short list this year is All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar 2, Babylon, Banshees of Inisherin, Wakanda Forever, Devotion, Don't Worry Darling, insert trumpet noise everything everywhere all at once the fablemans glass onion pinocchio nope she said woman king and women talking because they are shortlisted these are the only potential nominees yeah one of the reasons why i wanted to answer julia's question is i feel like in the recent years that we've had these shortlists coming out for selected categories it has the music branch, I do not understand them, especially the composing side of the mm-hmm. music branch, because it's so opposite to the songwriting, uh, like shortlists usually, or the, sure. so- the, that get eligible where it's like truly shit you've never heard of before. Right. Um, and the composers are always picking people that are like, I think they're one of the least adventurous branches at this point. For, You've written about you this what before, shows up I believe, right? List. Yeah. Huh? You've written about this before, I believe, right? Uh, I when did you rank do, the like, the best taste. I forget, I forget how I ranked them at the time. For now, I'm like, some of these scores, it's like, they're truly nominating their favorites, the people that they know, yeah. uh, or the names that they're familiar with. Like... Some of that is good. Like, if Terrence Blanchard is nominated for the Woman King score, sure. cool. Yeah. All about, you know, Terrence Blanchard. I will say, for as much as I really am going to need to dig back into these to, like, see what I liked best, as I was watching, she said, I really, really made note of how much I loved the Nicholas Bertel score in that movie. I mean, so. but, like... It- Nicholas Bertel is, like, one of their club, right? Like, Very I, I, recently, I hear you though. on that, Very and I do recently. think... He, uh, Nicholas Bertel's score brings a lot of emotional clarity to that movie that I think is lacking in some ways. Um, I also, uh, Hilda Gwynedotter's score for Woman Talking, fantastic. She is a recent winner. I think that there is a lack of adventurousness and even like, I think that's probably right. 
one of the ones I would root for is actually Carter Burwell for Banshees of Sharon. But Carter Burwell is like famous for getting snubbed by the yeah. score branch quite a bit. Um, but also still very famous. I will um, also say I'm going to root for Nope in this category just because I'm root- yeah. rooting for Nope to get in wherever it can because I think ultimately it's going to get under-rewarded no matter what. And mm-hmm. I I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I think uh, what's ultimately going to happen is that it's not going to be a very interesting list of five. Yeah. Um, Keegan asks a fun question uh, with accents over all of the A's in the question. <laughs> Lydia Tarr is famously a member of the EGOT Club. What on earth do you think she won her Oscar and her Tony for? Additionally, there are other fictional film characters that you think have an EGOT. Uh, I love the fictional character question part of Well, this. take that part first because I didn't, I didn't uh, read that far. Oh, the, the fiction, what fictional yeah. characters do I think yeah. have an EGOT? Yeah. Um, I wondered if Richard from the hours had it, but he does feel a little too granola to ever be involved in. A yeah. What would his, winning what would that Grammy be? Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> it would be his own audiobook. Yeah. Probably of true. The unreadable novel. That's yes. I'm more curious what his Emmy would be for. Mm, sure. 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 Well, but the Emmys, again, 8 billion, well, I guess the Grammys too, 8 billion categories will bound to find something that works. Yeah. Right. Richard, like the G in Richard's EGOT stands for Guggenheim. Like, <laughs> Chris, you know that Baby Annette has an EGOT. It's just a matter Baby of. Baby Annette was going to be my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Baby Annette has an EGOT. Yes. All right. Um, I'm glad we agreed. Okay. Good, good, good. Uh, the what other... do I think she want? I love the the joke that has been floated around on, uh, I believe it was Las Culturistas, that all of uh, Lydia Tarr's, I think this is Josh Sharp's joke, maybe, uh, that all of Lydia Tarr's EGOT awards are for acting. Um, <laughs> uh, that's very funny to me. That is funny. Uh, I mean, a lot of people get their Tony for just, like, producing things. Um, oh, I don't think that's Lydia though. My thing for her Tony is I think it was a, I think it was her first. I think she gets the Tony first, and it's when she's still coming up, and it's an orchestrations Tony for oh an orchestration that makes total sense. Like when she was um, still on the rise, right, right. Um, for like a revival of Candide or something like that, right? Like something <laughs> like that. What's her Oscar for though? I mean, I guess for maybe a score. I was going to say it's, the director of the score that Lydia Tarr the movie Lydia Tarr made a score for. In my mind, she Hans Zimmer had to drop out of a Christopher Nolan movie and she took over and everybody or like a Terrence out. Malick movie. Oh, see, well that makes more sense in terms my of My like, thing about yeah. this is like they can't all be for composing because it's text of the movie that like she can't really write her own shit. <laughs> like she sucks at it. Like Well, I would see a world and if that she's were the not case. A creator. Well, well I what if all of her egots are co are co wins like she co wrote oh. a score you know what I mean like she like all of them are in tandem with somebody I think if that were the case they would have mentioned it in tar because it only would have added to like her psychosis um, but maybe that's it maybe she has awesome. to share credit Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and Lydia Tarr did the score <laughs> for uh, a Fincher movie and they all won together. Um, uh, Lydia Tarr and Marvin Hamlish share a Tony Award together. Um, Cher mispronounced her name on that Oscar ceremony. <laughs> Lydia Tarr. Sorry, Lydia. 
Her Emmy is, of course, for guest starring on Mad About You. And um, her, what's the other one? Her Grammy. I mean, Grammy's sort of like, you imagine she won in one of their classical categories, because that's the easiest one to remember. Uh, Emmy, I think, is the most interesting, because like Emmy really, like voiceover uh artist perhaps um you know she's a, she's a voice <laughs> on big mouth own, uh, yeah by hbo special she's a hormone movie. monster on big mouth for its uh, uh <laughs> seventh season and she wins an emmy for that yeah uh friend of the show andy Gramuga asks uh, hey andy Hi, Andy. Um, wha, uh, what do you make of the state of the animated race right now? It seems like Netflix is focusing on Pinocchio over Wendell and Wild, but I'm curious about how the Disney Plus of it all affects Turning Red and how the flopping of it all affects Strange World as far as the usual dominant studio in the category goes. Yeah, I don't think Disney's winning this year. Disney yeah. may not even get nominated for Strange World. Turning Which is Red too bad because liked... I kind of liked Strange World. I thought it was cute. I'm going to catch up to it. Turning Red, I loved. And it feels like there's enough support for that movie that the Disney Plus thing will be fine. I think that movie is getting nominated. I don't think it's going to win. No, that's what's a bummer. And I do think that you've written about this, right? I do think Wendell and Wilde should be walking away with it. Not only because of Henry Selleck's... um, you know, just career and contribution to the art form. But I yeah. think it's the most interesting animation. I know that, like, I love this movie. I feel like a lot of people's hang up with it is they feel like it's too much. There's a lot it is. going and, like, on. I don't disagree. Just, I, that's kind of my hang up with it, that it takes it from like an A to a B plus or whatever. And um, like, it's not just the anime, like the animation being too much is fun. But, it's like, fine. On script it's the narrative. Level, it's a yeah, lot. It is. Too many um, things are happening. Too many things to keep track of. Yeah. Um, it should be walking away with it. Pinocchio, we've been having this conversation. It's like, nothing bad to say about Pinocchio. The animation is beautiful. It is an interesting iteration of It's so Pinocchio. weird. And I'm glad it's I weird. have almost nothing to say about it. Like, Here's what I will say in terms of its Oscar chances, though. I think the best decision anybody made was to put Guillermo del Toro's name in the title of that movie. Because right. Oscar voters no Guillermo del Toro deal. they love him and that is why this movie is going to win in a walk yep I think yep there's also a whole cartoon saloon movie that like <laughs> not nearly the best cartoon saloon movie but it's eligible and no one's talking about it no one's talking about it because it's not one of the best they've ever done but like what's it called you're not gonna consider cartoon saloon and the work that they do what uh, is the cartoon it's my father's movie? dragon it's on Netflix thank you and like it had been delayed a little bit it's definitely it for young children but like it's they still do incredible work and it's not even you know being considered all right uh let's get into the past and the future uh of the oscars uh love this question from phil what is your favorite uh actress roundtable hollywood reporter i have definitely not this year no. Well, I haven't watched this year's entirely. I will say I loved the viral clip that went around with Jennifer Lawrence. I thought that uh, way to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat with that quote, that dumb quote she made about the Hunger Games being the first female-led action movie. But, like, she got it all back by taking the pot shot at uh, Brian Singer. I thought that was very good. Um, <laughs> My thing about the whole female-led action movie is, like, 
if she thought about it, she probably wouldn't have right. said it. But like, right. certainly those studio heads at the time were definitely saying there's never been this. Like, well, and this because is because they're the most reductive people in the industry. And this is why pushing these uh, whatever talking points towards this direction every time of something has to be like the first time X representative thing ever happened in a movie is in this movie, and it's like. It's such a shallow way of talking about movies, and it makes people then put their foot in their mouth in this way. Anyway, THR Roundtable. I think my two answers are obvious, but clearly the right ones, which is 2018, everybody in red, Lady Gaga and Glenn Close staring at each other (laughs) over each other's shoulder, Catherine Hahn and Rachel Weisz uh, all but, you know, making out at the table. It's tremendous. It's a good time. The other one, we've talked about it here plenty, the 2010 roundtable. It's, I mean, you talk about all killer, no filler. Benning, Portman, Kidman, Swank, Adams. Juicy. Bonham Carter. It's so good. It's so wonderful. Lots happening in there. Uh, yeah, those Amy are Adams, two. an underrated presence in that one. I know that the joke is always that she's boring in these things, but this one she is not. The boring person in that one is Natalie Portman. But even Natalie Portman has that great Mila Schwarman story. Mila Everybody Schwarman gets a moment. Quote, I know. Everybody gets that's a moment. Why, that's why that one is the answer. Yes. My other answer, I would say for mine, is like, I just want an unruly amount of actresses. 2015 was not maybe <laughs> the most interesting, but it was way too many people. And yeah. that's how these things should be. Yeah. Because it's like six this year? It's like, them, like it's like a Real Housewives cast. It's like a Real Housewives cast. You don't want it to be too small because then there's not enough. Except it's to go in. not a good Real Housewives cast. It's like no, but what I mean is the 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 principle of it, which is you don't want a too small right. Real Housewives cast because then you're limited in your, you know, in your directions it can go. If you want, you know, you want a hefty amount. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I also have to say. 2016, just for the chaos agent presence of Isabel I was going to say, of course you were going to say Completely undermining every actress's questions with being like, yeah, it's not that hard. <laughs> I love the process. I love being an artist, but like uh, these questions are stupid. <laughs> she, no, she answers everything thoughtfully, but just like the gag of yeah. her being asked like, you have to film multiple rape sequences for this film. Was that hard? And she's like, no. Yeah. And they're like, has, job. It, has this work ever affected you personally? Has it any character you played changed you? No. Yeah. Like, yeah. Adore her. Adore her. My favorite actress. Um, yes. Uh, one of the greatest living. Uh, from Haley, uh, do you think Nora Ephron came close to winning a, any of her three screenplay nominations? If you could nominate and or award her for any of her screenplays or directing, would you? This, this is, is tough I because love this question because it is actually very tough. <laughs> it is because I wasn't I was at like 1993 was her last nomination and I was 13 then. So I wasn't really paying attention <laughs> to the the state of the screenplay race at that point. I would imagine that when Harry Met Sally came the closest because it was such a phenomenon yeah, that year. It's also the one that of the three of them most clearly should have won, like Dead Poet Society yeah. winning in retrospect is insane that it lost to when Harry Mattel. I know Dead Poet Society was also a huge fave at the time, so like I get why it won. But when Harry Met Sally is one of the all time best screenplays of and anything. It's, ever. it's there, I mean like I you can imagine that's probably the closest. It's also there with Do the Right Thing. 
and a Woody Allen screenplay yeah. um, for Crimes and Misdemeanors. Soderbergh is there for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. You have to imagine the nomination was the prize at the time, considering yes. that movie's It's a good stature. category. The, the worst of the five of them won, which is often how it happens. And, right, right. Um, but yeah, an all-time rate. Here's my other big opinion on Nora Ephron, which we are now... We're probably we going to have the same opinion. We passed the 10-year mark. In, in terms of she passed away uh, 10 years ago, which seems insane. Um, it would have happened in the last 10 years, but I'm really, really sad that Nora Ephron never got an honorary Oscar before she died. Like right. it would have happened in the last 10 years if she had lived, like it absolutely would have. Um, she's there's, she's the absolute perfect choice for who you give an honorary Oscar to whose contributions are so huge and who, um, because of the vagaries of things like genre was not always in a position to get the actual competitive awards that she could have. And she would have given a dynamite speech is the other thing. And whoever they would have gotten to present it to her would have given a dynamite speech. And I would be watching it every year. You know, I would watch it constantly. Um, I already, my YouTube is full of just Nora Ephron searches for like any number, anything she's ever said that's on a YouTube video, I will find. Um, but I, I yeah. recently watched Everything is Copy, had a good cry. Everything is Copy will make me weep. Just absolutely. I'm in, I'm in the final stages of uh, finishing the Mike Nichols book, which I have been chipping away at all year, incredibly slowly with intention. Yeah. Um, you don't want it to end. Or that I don't I don't want to like immediately yeah. starting into that book. I was like I don't want this to end. Yeah. Um I just want to spend like basically a year with Mike. Sure. Um and then I'm going to rewatch all the movies. Uh which brings me to she should have won for Silkwood and I actually think was probably closest to winning for Silkwood. Probably. Although Tender Mercies also won the WGA that year. So like Tender Mercies did seem like it was right. Solid. I mean Tender Mercies was made independently. And Horton um, Foote was very popular, I feel like, too, around that time. Right, that, that's, like, the era of him as a filmmaker. Fanny and Alexander, which, like, is, to me, surprising, considering how well it did with the Oscars, that, like, it isn't the uh, Ingrid Bergman movie, or not Ingrid Bergman, <laughs> the Ingmar Bergman movie that made it to Best Picture and Cries and Whispers, which is out there right. and i love it but like yeah. fanny and alexander it makes sense that it did so well with the oscars but it wasn't a best picture nominee yeah. i don't necessarily think they were gonna give it screenplay though yeah war games is such an outlier it is big chills the best picture nominee even i hate that movie um yeah and silkwood's incredible i mean silkwood had Silkwood's fantastic of, yeah it had a lot of controversy around it that happened at the time because of the real life story Yes, and because of, you know, people thought of it as a propaganda movie, you know, a lot of people on the right attacked Against them. nuclear power? Like, okay. Well, and, yeah. uh, you know, it all comes... No, I get it. I, I but it's like yeah, manipulation of facts, and you're making this into a propaganda thing, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's probably why it wasn't a Best Picture nominee. Um, what a terrible documentary Silkwood was. Jesus Christ. Exactly. Yeah. Um, to, well, and it was, you know, wrapped up in a lot of, uh, like, not legal trouble, but they had to make the movie in some of the way that it did. And, like, especially that ending, 
there was a lot of tinkering because it was like, how much can you actually say? How much trouble will we get in mm-hmm. if we say the suggestive thing versus... That she was murdered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I, would, I think that should be her Oscar and her closest. There you go. A million Oscars for Silkwood. <laughs> Honestly, a million Oscars for Nora. <clears throat> Excuse me, a million Oscars for Nora is what I say. Yeah. Uh, Alex asked us, are there any widely disliked Oscar wins that you guys are by contrast fans of? I'm going to say the unpopular thing. I like Birdman a lot. You do like Birdman a lot. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's what I mean, like, I feel like it's more of a forgotten. I mean, people moved on, and partly they hate The Revenant more than they hate Birdman. Uh, sure, but I also feel like anytime you bring up Birdman up, uh, uh, around people, people will be like, ugh. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. that's sort of like the instant reaction. So, like, I get that. I think one that p- more people have come around on lately, but I remember at the time people were very negative on Helen Hunt winning Best Actress for As Good As It Gets. Like, the sort of snob, the snob crowd sort of looked mm-hmm. down their nose at that win. I think she's tremendous in that movie i will say and this is like this is real like uh, uh, disliked and like this is me actually going out on a limb but like unfortunately i really like both of kevin spacey's oscar-winning performances i think he's great in both of those movies and probably would not change either one of those even though he is a horrible creep um also i would have voted for laurie metcalf in ladybird but i don't dislike Alice and Janney and I, Tanya. I think she is uh, tremendously entertaining in that movie. Uh, Shane asked this next question and asked it right because he also gave a contextual uh, joke uh, location (laughs) in addition to his name. Shane, from the balcony of the Casa Rosada, asks, my annual rewatch of Evita has inspired me to ask this question how close was madonna to really cracking best actress in 1996 feasibly sixth place but were the globes always going to give it to her and uh would she have needed more strong precursor nods to make a real case so i want to break this down chris because i find this very interesting i like the question in before us is who was sixth place in 1996 best actress because if you look at it how close was madonna and how close was Madonna? But I think, it, but I think it ultimately comes down to who was sixth place. Like that's my question, and it's an interesting year because all there's famously the SNL uh, bid where three yes. of the people snubbed are part of it, including Madonna. Right, uh, Madonna, Courtney Love, Debbie Reynolds were that sketch. Um, but there's such a concentration of power at the top this year where mm-hmm. the Globes and BAFTA and SAG all really agreed on Francis McDormand, Brenda Blethyn, Francis McDormand and Fargo, who won, Brenda Blethyn in Secrets and Lies, Kristen Scott Thomas in The English Patient, and Emily Watson in Breaking the Waves. I think Emily Watson's the only one of those who didn't get nominated for BAFTA, or for no, SAG. No, that's, that's the four for BAFTA. Right, that's the four for BAFTA, and then SAG snubbed Emily Watson in favor of Jenna Rollins. Classic SAG. Uh, uh, Early days outlier. of SAG, too. Um, I don't think the indie spirits really factor in too heavily this year. So no. you're also Rans, Glo- the Globes nominated Meryl Streep for Marvin's Room, who gets replaced by Diane Keaton in, uh, in the Oscar list. Courtney Love for People vs. Larry Flint, Madonna for Evita, Debbie Reynolds for Mother, Barbara Streisand for 
um, the mirror has two faces. And then, like I said, Jenna Rollins for Unhook the Stars, right? Yes. Uh, in SAG. Of those six women, one of them was sixth place. I don't think it's Meryl. Because I, I think, think if Meryl, Meryl... see, I It's think the if, boring answer, but I think it's Meryl. Here's what I will say, though. I think if Meryl were close enough to be sixth, she would have pulled too many votes from Diane Keaton, and Keaton wouldn't have been nominated. I think if I Keaton's don't know if that's the case. I don't know. Okay. I think... Because Madonna, I, I think of the three SNL snubbies, I think it's very possible Madonna was the furthest behind of those three. I disagree. I think Debbie Reynolds of the three of those was... I think Debbie Reynolds was a classic Golden Globes comedy nominee that was never going to get an Oscar nomination. I think... She won some critics' prizes, I thought, though. Let me look this back up, because I thought that she had done well and had won, like, an L.A. or a New York, but maybe I'm remembering wrong. I would venture to say... The film won National Society in New York for the screenplay. Okay. And... Oscar has never really responded to Albert Brooks movies. His and it got movies. and it didn't get any other Oscar nominations, right? Did, or did it, get it get a screenplay? Score? <laughs> no, it did not. It okay. Did not. Um, I feel like, and again, this is vibes only, but like I remember the conversation at the time. I just remember the vibe at the time. I think Madonna and Courtney were close. Canceled each other out. Maybe, but I also feel like they were both close. I think one of them was six. That is my guess, is that one of them was six. I'd be willing to bet that Courtney Love was higher, probably, because... First of all, I love I that it's that Courtney was a Love w- and Madonna. more widely respected performance. Uh, which, was it the year after their altercation at the VMAs? Their VMAs... Hold on, I gotta look this up. It's either... <laughs> I think that was 95. Uh, Madonna. I've written I about think this, this I is after. I, the VMAs is after because I think that's like beautiful no. stranger era Madonna. Nope. It was 1995. Uh, 1995 because oh, it was shit. the year that Alanis performed You Ought to Know uh, when that album was really breaking because the first thing that Courtney says to Madonna is congratulations about Alanis because Alanis was a Maverick Records uh, artist. Mm. Um, and that was like the first thing she's sort of like she's poking at Madonna the whole time. It's we've we at some point just should consider that a um, film and do that uh, <laughs> do that altercation on this at Oscar Buzz. It's my favorite thing to break down. Everything that Courtney does just bothers Madonna so much. It's the most rattled I've ever seen Madonna in her entire career. It's so amazing. Um, so that happened in '95, and this Oscar race is '96. So like, it would have been kind of tremendous if they could have found a way to nominate the both of them. That was never going to happen, but um, would have been amazing. Do we think I we're underrating? I at least don't think Madonna was sixth, at the Do, very least. I think there's a better chance than maybe you think. Do we think we're underrating Jenna Rollins because SAG is the best Oscar predictor? Like, should we maybe. be rating her more because SAG means more than a Golden Globe precursor? Early SAG, though, is not a great Oscar predictor. I think you're right. A I lot of right. their outliers are not predictive sag now is a different story than the early years of sag yeah didn't that also get a supporting actress nomination that year for tomei yes right hold on um i really wish imdb would clump the movie nominees 
in a different place than the TV nominees. You're cluttering up my feed here. Um, let's see. Yes, Marissa Tomei, Unhook the Stars. Also nominated Gwen Verdon for Marvin's Room. I always forget about that one. See, this actress. is why I think it was Meryl. I think Marvin's Room, despite only being nominated for well, Diane Keaton. Wait, you can't... With- you can't go, oh, Marvin's Room got support at the SAGs in the same sentence we're saying we don't think Unhook the Stars was a factor because it was early SAG. Well, that's not I'm saying broadly. I think Marvin's Room was a movie everyone saw and had a, had enough respect. <laughs> I think more people saw The People versus Larry Flint than saw Marvin's Room. I think more people were paying attention to Evita than saw Marvin's Room. Right. I don't know. I mean, I, think, I probably think Courtney Love gets nominated if she's not Courtney Love. But um, yes, I think that's true. Here's what I will say: the only solution to this, uh, Academy Museum, invite Chris and I over to do a live podcast from the Academy Museum, and then afterwards, <laughs> just let us off mic go into the vault and look at the tallies, and then like we'll say nothing, but we'll both know. That's the solution to this. Uh, and then we will recreate the Madonna Courtney Love yes. uh, altercation. Yes. Okay, who's cast as Madonna? Who's cast? As- I I'm much better at annoying you, so I'm probably Courtney Love. All right, I'll be Madonna. I will. Uh, I will be. <laughs> you will. You will stately for your art and be Madonna. Who is the Kurt Loader in this situation? Who do we cast as Kurt Loader? To Katie be- Rich. Yes. All right, Katie, come on. Come on and be Katie yeah. Rich. Uh, can I ask you a question before we move on to the next question? Yeah. Who do you vote for in that lineup? 96? Yeah. Francis. I vote for Brenda Blethyn. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. a Francis. Like, uh, it's a great category. I, I, I mean, like, that, it, that is a real uh, tough decision, but... Uh, Brenda Blethyn's great in Secrets and Lies, but I think, like, Fargo is one of my all-time favorite movies, and Francis in Fargo is one of my all-time favorite performances, so, like... I'm, my hands are tied. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not much I could do. Sorry, Brenda. <laughs> let's try to blaze through yes, uh, a few more questions before we call it. Um, Tad asks, what multiple Oscar-nominated actor or actress do you think is destined to just never actually win one? They gave the examples of Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton, who uh, both had eight, I believe, and never won. Seven or eight. Um, and then um, also Deborah Carr was six, right? Or seven? I thought she was six. Maybe six. Okay. Anyway. Um, because she was always, was she the one who was always tied with, Ju- tied up with when people would talk about Julianne Moore's stats? Maybe. And then Julianne Moore won. Yeah. Uh, I pulled at least the living actors that have four or more nominations. Read this list. It's an interesting list. Yeah. Uh, at the highest, the living actor with the most nominations and never won is eight nominations for Glenn Close. Six is Amy Adams. And then when we get into the people who are four and living, it's Jane Alexander, Warren Beatty, Annette Benning, Bradley Cooper, Willem Dafoe, Ed Harris, Marsha Mason, Saoirse Ronan, and Michelle Williams. Sad for Jane, sad for Marsha Mason. It's not happening there. Um, Sorry, ladies. Okay, so Peter O'Toole got to eight with that Venus nomination. Richard Burton had seven. Ah. of this list okay it's so tough to say obviously we feel like amy adams michelle williams get more but not win i think of this list the best chances are amy adams michelle williams willem dafoe saoirse ronan bradley cooper in that order maybe um i think in that i think glenn close is absolutely going to win before she dies how many more bites at the apple though is she going to get 
I think she just needs a bite at the apple, frankly. I mean, that's what the last two kind of were, were though, which is just like something. Literally give her anything. I don't. And that we've tried that now twice. I, I don't know if that's less. Of a, I mean, the deterrence for both of those were the movies. I mean, like, yes, it needs to be. The wife a, was not like despised, though. Most people didn't love it, but it's not like nobody people liked hated it, it, though. Not to a degree that I, I don't know. I don't know. We can, we can debate this. I think the answer of someone who could definitely be nominated at least one more time and not win is Annette Benning. unfortunately. That would crush me. Annette Benning. that's another one. Like, at this point, give her her an honorary then, because (laughs) for God's sake, something. I think Willem Dafoe is winning the next time he gets nominated, unless it's for something really weird. I'm not sure, because like his nominations are so oddball to begin with. I mean, if he wasn't going to win for the Florida Project, I don't think he's going to win. He would probably be my second answer. Okay. God, that'd be a bummer. Um, <laughs> I think Ed Harris is never going to win an Oscar, and that's going to be sad. The reason I wouldn't pick Ed Harris for this is I don't think he's getting nominated again. I think I I can see him getting nominated one more time and not winning. I can. I mean, I, I I see it, but he's not being how, in a lot of noteworthy movies, though. How many more before Saoirse wins? I mean, maybe the next one. She, but she's my thing with Saoirse is she's so young that she could get nominated again, and I could easily see voters being like, she'll get one. I, could I think Saoirse's going to be Kate like Winslet, frankly. She's yeah. going to probably win for one that we're not going to feel great about. Probably. Whatever. Um... Next question from John. Uh, again, uh, like the previous question, giving us uh, you know location with it. John says he's from the part of England that inspired one of <laughs> Anne Hathaway's worst accents. Love that. Uh, he says the beloved SNL Five Timers Club is surprisingly light on Oscar winners. Of the list, who do you think will be the next to receive their first nomination or win? I mean, I hope it's Melissa McCarthy because she, she deserves from... Uh... At least for nominations. Two. I hope it's John Goodman. Well, I do too. I see. I think I'm at where with John Goodman, the where you are with Ed Harris, where I feel like it's just we've maybe passed that point. I do think Steve Martin is kind of always a possibility. I agree. Also, do you feel like there is a world in which, in maybe ten years, Drew Barrymore gets a comeback? role in a movie that is God, so well received that she gets an Oscar. I would love it so much. I it's all I want. It's all I want <laughs> is for Drew Barrymore to have an Oscar. Make it happen. Next person to win is probably not necessarily a fun or interesting one. I mean, now that Scarlett Johansson has gotten nominated, I feel like it could be that. It I want to say it's Melissa McCarthy, but like if she can't win for, you know, the variety of the two performances that she's given, I right. I wonder. Lord knows it but. should have been Candace Bergen a few years ago for Let Them All Talk, but you don't want We're not ready to have that fucking, conversation. We're not ready to have that conversation. Yeah. Um, Paul asks, in your opinion, both of you, what's the worst Best Picture lineup of the 90s? Oh, I dug into this This is one. a chaos question. Because what's your Paul answer? Paul wants to end our friendship. Why? What are you going to say? I'm going to say 1992. Wow, not even in my top three. Oh, it's because you don't like A Few Good Men. 
it's not that I dislike A Few Good Men. It's that, I mean, I can't, when you look at that lineup, I can't argue with it being there because it's maybe my second choice in my second place. But at the same time, Scent of a Woman, not a good movie. Martin Brest got a Best Director nomination for that movie, which is insane. I have a bit of a soft spot for Scent of a Woman, I have to say. I mean, it, it, it's funny and broad, and like I understand people having a soft spot for it. It's very no entertaining. Being there. It's very entertaining. Unforgiven is a Best Picture win I do not like. I am sorry. I don't like it. The Crying Game, I oh, get and it. I especially love The Crying as like Game is the other thing. thing. Yeah. Um, it just maybe never quite connects for me. Yeah, I really um, like the 92 I, I fully <laughs> understand why people like it. I would yeah. say the same thing for A Few Good Men. I just yeah. don't think it should be a Best Picture nominee. Yeah. And Howard's End is, like, one of the best movies of the 90s. So Yeah, Howard's End's fantastic. Yeah, I yeah. love that whole lineup, maybe. I don't love – maybe it's – I don't maybe love every movie in it, but, like, that's a strong lineup to me. My, My other one is, oh, is sorry, probably 1990, which is, you know, same thing for list. me, where there's like yes. the obvious winner, and my second place is like, I guess this is my second place. I, I As much as I love Ghost and have a good time with Ghost, I don't think it's a good movie. Um, I with Wolves, can't stand it. I mean, Awakenings, not like I want to take anything away from Penny Marshall. Right, but that's the thing. It's so sappy and... The 90 lineup is, like, Goodfellas is obviously the consensus choice now for, like, what's the best of them. I don't hate Dances with Wolves the way a lot of people hate Dances with Wolves, but I can accept the fact that, like, it's not one of the greats. I think The Godfather Part 2, similarly, sometimes gets a little bit too much hate, but you watch it again and you're like, this is a step down. Um, I don't even think I would say Ghost is not a good movie. It's just, it's a puzzler as a Best Picture nominee. I am fine with it Ghost. It made so much fucking money. Well, that's the thing. and I But I'm fine with Ghost as just being the crowd pleaser that it is. And Whoopi still wins. Like, that's fine. But, like, as a Best Picture nominee, it's odd. And I will not take anything away from Penny Marshall. Uh, I don't remember much about Awakenings. It's been a very long time. since I was probably too young to see and appreciate Awakenings. But, like... Yeah. My choice, 1990 was on my list, as was 95, because I really don't care for Braveheart. Il Postino, to me, is like a Harvey Weinstein accomplishment, and I don't want to recognize that. Um, But like, Sense and Sensibility is great. Babe is great. Apollo 13 is great. So it's like, you're, you know, the best's and the worst, right? I think my choice, strangely enough for being such a ballyhooed year, is 99. Just because... Yeah, 99. 99, if you're looking at the criteria of, like, what could have been versus, like, strictly what thing. is the lineup... That's the thing, yeah. That's, that's a good answer. The other thing is, like, American Beauty, I have complicated feelings about. Cider House Rules, I don't hate as much as other people do. Green Mile is kind of a nothing to me. But, like, The Insider's my favorite Michael Mann, and The Sixth Sense is mm-hmm. probably my favorite M. Night Shyamalan. So, like, even that lineup has two, you know, legit bangers. So, it's a tricky question. 90s are a weird uh, Oscar yeah. decade. All right. Um, Leo asks, what's the most random acting Oscar nomination across any decade? A ton to pick, but mine is Robert Loja for Jagged Edge. Leo, I'm sorry. I'm going to steal your answer. I don't understand that nomination. I've never seen that movie. Is it bad? The thing is, I understand Robert Loja being nominated as like kind of a career achievement. 
I don't think he's doing anything interesting. I mean, like, he he's, like, playing very much kind of, like, a supporting actor nomination type of role, yeah. right? But even so, it's not like he's wisecracking. It's like, imagine that type of quintessential supporting actor nomination with, like, half the screen time in a movie that was not critically well-received. It was a box office hit and kind of, like, a, you know controversial uh, talking point which like Karina Longworth did on her show right um but like I don't understand that that being a thing that gets nominated for that actor in that role yeah um out of nowhere (laughs) the 80s were an interesting decade though for like kind of out of nowhere because like there's also and again these are all movies I haven't seen yet so I'm like curious to go check them out like Amy Madigan and Twice in a Lifetime I always think of is like Nobody ever talks about Twice in a Lifetime. Is that a good movie? I don't know. I would like to go and check it out. I do love Amy Madigan. I'm glad that she has an Oscar nomination somewhere. Um, The 80s are also like the last firmly studio. It's why we don't do many 80s movies on this podcast because the Oscars were still so studio based. So you do get some of those nominations, especially for like stars. I'm thinking of like. I don't know if this was like 1980 or maybe the late 70s, but like Jane Fonda in the Morning After, which is like oh, that was later only nominated for an Jane Oscar. Fonda in the Morning After. I think is late 80s. I think it's like 89 or 80. Interesting. Or like I that. I forget when it is. Like it's it's not to say she's bad in it, but right. it is very funny. Well, or like only Alfre like Woodard's Oscar. only Oscar nomination is for Cross Creek, which like I've seen Cross Creek. It's not bad, but like it's odd that like that's her only Oscar nomination. Mine should that, have been nominated for Passion Fish. Should have 100%. been nominated for Crooklyn. Yes. Should have been nominated for Clemency. Yeah, I agree. Uh, my I kept sort of drifting into nominations that I just thought were bad. And like, I don't think that's what this question is. I kept being like, oh, it's Stanley Tucci and the Lovely Bones. And it's like, that's not really the most random. It's just the worst one. I kept thinking like Nick Nolte and Warrior. It's like, no. Uh, Patricia Clarkson and Pieces of April. And it's just like, no, you just want her to be nominated for the station agent. Like, that's not the answer. And those are nominations that like carried through the season. The Robert Rojo one, if I'm remembering correctly, is it nominated elsewhere? Okay, so Jane that's Fonda the wasn't nominated. I mean, she's Jane Fonda, so it's not random. One I've always like, been a little bit puzzled by, and again, is an actress I love and a performance I think is good. But like Diane Weist for Parenthood, how did that happen? Like that's a mainstream comedy that was like well liked, but it wasn't really a phenomenon. It's a genre mm-hmm. that the Oscars don't usually go for. They love her, obviously, but like. It's an odd one. The other one, it's I'm just, gonna, just loving her that much. The other one is me going to be a bitch, but like <laughs> in 10 years, are we really going to look back at Maria Bakalova and Borat's subsequent movie film and be like one of the greats? Like, I, I agree. I, I don't think so. I like, think that I'm that is. Asshole. No, I mean, I agree with you. I was never that like, is the this most is pandemic nomination of all the pandemic nominations. Like, we were stuck in our houses and we didn't know what to do with ourselves, and everybody decided that I Maria think it's Bakalova also, it, was a great. It really reflects where we were politically at that uh-huh. very particular moment because I think she got a lot of credit for taking down Rudy going, Giuliani for not having you know the acting credits before and going toe to toe with Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, like. Yeah. It's a weird it's kind of a stunt that people were responding to because of yeah. our political frustrations at the yeah. time, I feel like. Um, All right. We got we to gotta blast through because we are over. Time. Let's ask one more question. Okay. Uh, which is kind of a simple question. Okay. Chauncey asks, simple question, but interesting. Uh, what is the mo- who is more likely to win their third Oscar, Tom Hanks or Denzel? 
Also ask, would it be for acting? I think it would be for acting. Um, I think, I it's, think Denzel. it's Denzel. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think it is. Tom I, Hanks, it took so long between yeah. uh, Saving Private Ryan, no, Castaway, yeah. and uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I, I think he's doing one of his best performances ever in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and it was always third fiddle in that race. They've snubbed um, Tom Hanks for great acting repeatedly in a way that they haven't done that for Denzel. And Tom Hanks's multiple Oscars have worked against him in a way that it hasn't for Denzel. And I also think Denzel is still doing some of his best work now. And even though A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, I think it's some of Tom Hanks's best work, I don't think generally he's doing his best work of his career now. Well, but even when he does, though, like he'll throw a Captain Phillips in there, which I think is some of the best work that his career uh, in his career, he gets snubbed for uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. I won't ever get over that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's our mailbag episode. Listeners, thank you, thank you so much for this. We, yeah. uh, we're giving you uh, uber-sized episode, yes. hopefully, yes. and uh, you're enjoying it, whether, you know, enjoying leftovers at home, avoiding cold weather, yes. traveling between destinations, or just listening to this as you regularly do. Uh, we very much appreciate your support and your listenership, and we hope that this was a fun annual tradition for you all. Thanks. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'll say. Happy New Year. Yeah. Uh, Go up to your... uh, Listen, in 2023, we're going to be bold. Go up to your crush and give them the Billy Crystal uh, When Harry Met Sally monologue. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Unless it's creepy, then don't do it. Um, Go see a movie. Go to your theaters. Go see a motion picture. See a motion picture. Do it for us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's all if you want more of this at Oscar Buzz you can check out the Tumblr at this at oscarbuzz.tumblr.com you should also follow us on Twitter at hat underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at this hat Oscar Buzz Joe where can the listeners find more of you uh, Letterboxd and Twitter both are at Joe Reed Reed spelled R-E-I-D and I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Kevin Mevius for the technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So ring in the new year with a nice review. New year, new reviews. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. If you had a brother, you're gay. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown.